0: If you're holding back and you're afraid that somebody's going to see that you're an imposter or that you don't know as much as you might think you know, then all you're going to do is take little small risks. You're going to do the safe route and you're going to wait forever before you actually produce something. Art of Story, where we watch a movie, break it down, look at the story structure, and see what we can learn from it. Um, I'm Adam Argo, and today I'm joined by Adam William Cahill, the legend, the filmmaker, the storyteller, the cinematic master. How you doing, man? <laughs>
1: Oh, too much praise, too much praise! I'm going to be such a letdown now for watch stuff. No, I'm good. Man. No, I'm I'm real good. Um, I'm uh, I'm I'm excited and and uh, encouraged by how often we get to do these um these podcasts lately. So um, I'm dying to dive into this next one. So thanks again for having me on.
0: Yeah, this is this is a good one. This will be a this was this is actually one that you recommended that we dive into, and mm-hmm. I. You know, I love it. I, I think this is a really great movie to analyze, and uh, I think we'll get some really juicy, meaty stuff to learn from it as well. Um, so, there are before- two movies that
1: made me want to make movies. Two movies really? that made me want to make film. Signs is one of them. Lord of the Rings was, was the other. And oh, so, like, just want to make movies,
0: and it was—they actually came out around the same time as well.
1: Yeah, they weren't too far apart. Yeah. Interesting. I've
0: actually heard that from a few different filmmakers that that Signs is one of the movies that made them want to make movies.
1: There's something That's... about it, man, where where you kind of you 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 want. There's something about it that kind of get, gets you to um, identify the. It's almost like it's it's weird the way you can kind of see the gears of the filmmaker working. I think is what it is. There's something about when you're watching it, it's like oh yes, I'm immersed in the film, but I'm also thinking I I'm I'm kind of um very caught up in what the what the filmmaker was trying to do. You you it's it's weird how you get the strange sense that as much as you're immersed in it. It's very much a movie, and I'm intrigued as to how the movie was put together. You don't always get that walking out of a film. You're just like, oh, I saw a great story. That's great. I'm moving on. There was something about the mechanics of this that made me think it's such a well-put-together film. And I watched it again and again and again and thought, I, I want to do this. <laughs> you know, So it's, 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 just, it's, it's a great movie for that for some reason. That's fantastic.
0: Uh, do you remember how old you were when you saw it for the first time?
1: 2002. I would have been... 2002. I would have been 16. Okay.
0: So 16 when you saw it for the first time, you saw it in the theater.
1: Um, yes I did. Okay. Yeah.
0: Interesting. Okay. That's yeah. That's a really formative time. Definitely. (laughs) Okay, cool. Well, before we dive into signs, I do have a quick announcement. Um, and which is, uh, we're going to be doing a live event, uh, that is specifically for subscribers. Uh, it's a story structure intensive. We're going to be doing it in January 2024. Um, it's it w- basically what it's going to be is a two hour session where we go through story structure. But what we're going to do is take an idea, a completely under undeveloped idea, a new high concept idea, and then use the story structure to develop a complete feature film and kind of develop it into an outline. So it'll be taking it from just the, just the kernel of the idea, develop the character, develop the plot, and uh, kind of model the practice of developing a story all the way from, from scratch to a solid outline that you could take into a screenplay if you wanted to. Um, and then after that, we're going to have a and a, it'll be approximately two hours. You, these things tend to run a little long. Um, so, um, so you want to subscribe to that, Uh, It's going to be a live event. uh, So you'll be able to be a part of the development process and you can ask questions and uh, have full access to everything we're going to be talking about. Um, And then I'll be using the specifically the 24 plot point uh, um, template for it. Now, one of the most common questions I get is, you know, can I get uh, access to, to the 24 plot points? Can I get the template? Can I get the outline? And then lots of questions about specifics. So this is an opportunity to, Look at what the, the template is as as a kind of prototype. We'll see how we're taking different plot points and breaking it apart, and how it works with the development process. And it's 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 a class that I've taught uh, like when I was at Cal Arts, um, and then it kind of applies to some of the stuff I taught at USC as well. Um, but it, it's a really great uh, in adrenaline injection to whatever story development it has. It kind of models story development. Um, so you'll want to go to uh, CinematicCore.com. And uh, be sure to sign up for the registration. Um, and uh, I think it'll be a really fun experience. I'm really excited about it. So yeah, check that out. Re- register at Cinematicore.com, and then uh, we also want to go to a listener question. We've we've been getting I've been getting tons of emails asking questions about like different specific aspects um, about story, story structure, how plot relates to character, how to develop a character arc, all these things. So if you write in, if you go to the website, there's a little section, uh, under the art of story podcast where you can submit a question. Um, and we recently got one from, uh, I think it was Daniel Cole. Is that right?
1: That's correct. Daniel Cole sent in a message to the website. You want to go
0: ahead and read that for us?
1: Of course, absolutely. So Daniel Cole writes, My question requires slight context. Why do aspiring writers have Steven Segal syndrome or fake martial artist syndrome? I heard an interview on Bulletproof Screenwriting where the guest said that, quote, Out of a class of 100 students, only one of them actually knew what an active protagonist was, even though all 100 of them would say that they understood it, end quote. I took a class with Corey Mandel, great for you mate. Uh We did an exercise where we had to write a one page script uh, with specific character parameters. The class would all submit their scripts to each other. None of us, and I mean, none of us could do the exercise. We were all missing the mark and we were all surprised by it. We thought we were awesome. We thought we were black belts, but we weren't even white belts uh, and a few improved. Why? Why is it so hard to see our own work for what it is when it's bad?
0: Excellent. That's such a great question. Thanks, uh, Daniel, for submitting that. Um, it's um, so first of all, Corey Mandel is an amazing source for screenwriting story, anything you can get your hands on from Corey Mandel. I strongly recommend it. I've, I've learned a ton mm-hmm. from watching his interviews and watching his discussions over the years. Um it's a great question. It kind of, it kind of presents the idea of like, you know, how, how do you, why are we so deluded? Why do we think we're so much better than we are? Which I think there's kind of a spectrum when it comes to competency as an artist. Now this is a big artistic question and that spectrum runs from the Dunning-Kruger to the imposter syndrome. And I look at uh, Dunning, so Dunning-Kruger real quick is you learn a little, there's a kind of this effect where you learn a little bit and suddenly you feel like you're an expert. And so your confidence just goes through the roof because you've learned so much and you, you're you talking as if you're an expert on it. But the more you learn about a subject, your confidence starts to drop and you start to feel like maybe I don't know as much as I would. And the more expert you actually become in a field, the more humble you are about it and the less confidence you have in it, which is interesting because that often gives way to imposter syndrome because you see other people who are experts and you see them constantly teaching you things and you're like, oh, thank God I didn't say anything. I'm just embarrassing myself. Now, the interesting thing about is as an artist, my personal belief is that the only way to approach it is the Dunning-Kruger embrace the dunning-kruger and the reason i say lean into the dunning-kruger lean into the delusion that you are god's gift to screenwriting god's gift to the world with definitely with a, a big spoonful of humility now the what i'm saying is don't go in there and act like you know everything but go in there and be passionate when you approach the page your ideas are valuable your ideas are worth Telling. And it doesn't matter if you're wrong. It doesn't matter. The, the only way you're going to learn is if you throw yourself at the target with everything you've got. If you're holding back and you're afraid that somebody's going to see that you're an imposter or that you don't know as much as you might think you know, then all you're going to do is take little small risks. You're going to do the safe route and you're going to wait forever before you actually produce something. The way you actually grow as an artist. Is throwing everything you got, pulling as hard as you can at the bow and shooting the arrow. Even if you miss, the important thing is that you're building the muscles. And if you're not committing yourself, like throwing yourself, really genuinely engaging, then what you're doing is playing it safe and not growing as an artist. If you don't put your stuff out there, if you're not willing to show your work to people and have all the flaws just hanging out and have everybody commenting on everything you did wrong, then you're not going to grow. And unfortunately, there's this there's this tendency in artists to be like, I want to wait until I'm good enough. I did that. I've suffered from imposter syndrome most of my career. And and because of that, there's there's kind of this feeling of like it, it, it kept me from growing because I would try so hard. I, I didn't want to be embarrassed. And I think what we need to do is kind of foster this, uh, this air in our culture where we celebrate risks, where, where we celebrate th- things that are, would, what people would say is failure. And rather than seeing it as a failure, seeing it as the opportunity to grow that it is. Because what we need to do is try something, see if it works. And if it doesn't, then we keep growing because this is art. Nobody has the answers. Everything I'm sharing are my best ideas of what's working for me and what I value. Everybody needs to find that for themselves. So I would say like, it's true. It's very hard to see where your weaknesses are. And the reason is, is because we don't know what our weaknesses are until we put them out there. It's, it's feedback. Art is a communication. It's a bridge between two minds. And it's not until you get response from the other mind that you're seeing if there's a connection there, which is why I strongly recommend you find other artists like, for example, for me, Adam Cahill is a great example of an artist who pushes back, challenges me and gives me feedback that is helpful to me. It it, it goes back to that question of criticism of don't take criticism that tells you you're not good enough. Look at the critics who say this is what it takes to be good. Those are the people who respect that art is a process. So at at the heart of it, that's what I got to say about it. Don't worry about Dunning-Kruger. Avoid imposter syndrome. Do what you believe, and you'll learn along the way. What are your thoughts, Adam?
1: Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I've gotten a lot further in life, I believe, than I would have for the, for, because of the fact that I've, I would definitely lean more into the believing that I'm more capable than I actually um, because you're at least you're actually willing to go out and take the risks. That's exactly correct. I, and, and I don't think it's just true with art, I think it's the same with absolutely anything. I, I think I got my driver's license faster than I would have done if I felt like, oh, I, I don't belong behind the wheel of a car. I went out <laughs> and I failed. I failed the driving test twice before I passed because I, 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 att- I, I, I got the learner's permit, then went and did the test way, way too soon because I thought I was a, a rally driver. And then, but I, because as a result, I did because I was going out there every day, constantly driving, 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 and then I knew where I was making the mistakes because I was given the report afterwards, I still got the license quicker than I would have done if I had done the the amount of lessons that people wanted me to take. So mm-hmm. I'm, not, like, I'm, I'm not saying that's a perfect example, but it is a case that in all walks of life, not just in art, I think that you will achieve more, you learn more by believing you can do something and failing, because at least you'll learn from the failures as well. Mm-hmm. So... I agree completely.
0: As long as you're retreating into that imposter syndrome, you don't get the opportunity to grow. You don't get to learn that you're making the mistake, which hurts. And unfortunately our culture, especially social media and online culture, it punishes people who try something and then don't achieve it, which, you know, I I just think we need to grow up as a culture. Like it's the people who are trying something and failing are the ones who are leading into the dark and like, genuinely giving us growth and learning. So, yeah, great. It is a
1: cliche. It is a cliche for sure, but I, the, it's, it's, it's win or learn, not win or lose. And that, and that's mm. the best way to, that's the best way to consider it. Because when every time that this, that you attempt something, even if you go out and try and make a movie and it turns out to be absolute, an absolute mess. If you just think, Oh, I lost, it's terrible. Everybody hates me. You're never going to try again. But if you look at it and go, okay, why is it a mess? What did I do wrong? Why is no one connecting with this material? then yeah. you can, that's exactly how you want to make the, the next one significantly better than the first one. So it, always consider your losses uh, lessons, not losses. That's, that's great.
0: I, I like that. Which is interesting. I saw an interview with M. Night Shyamalan one time, and it was at a, I think it was a junket, and a journalist asked him, you know, like, so why do you think these films are failing? You know, is it because you're not, you know, you, have you lost a touch or something like that? Wow. And you could see the journalist asking the question was suffering from the imposter syndrome. The journalist sure. asking the question was saying like, aren't you embarrassed? And then Night Shyamalan responded in like such a great way. He's, he's like, if I thought that way, I would kill myself right now. He's like, mm. I'm trying things. I'm doing things. And if people don't like it, that's fine. But I'm going through my artistic process. I have so much respect for that. Not every movie of his lands for me, but the ones that have landed like pound me in the heart. And I love it. Absolutely which is a great segue into today's movie. You've got a story inside you. A screenplay no one has ever thought of. A novel you've been rolling around inside your coconut for years. Maybe you wrote a few pages and stalled out. Maybe you even wrote a whole draft but don't feel confident it's any good. Or maybe you've been writing draft after draft after draft and slamming into writer's blocks or dead ends or wandering into the weeds. Maybe you just have a few scenes centered around some dope high concept but you don't know how to develop a character. Much less construct a plot that would generate a character arc. Maybe all you have is some simmering spark of an idea. Just a simple desire to write a story, this book is for you. Story by Numbers is a step-by-step process. It gives you the tools to construct a plot that fleshes out your story with characters so real, so compelling, so multi-dimensional, you'll begin to wonder if you're possessed. Story by Numbers is composed of three parts. Part 1 gives you an overview of the four-act structure, 24 plot points, 8 sequences. Part 2 is a 35-question examination of your story that will guide you through developing and outlining your novel or screenplay into the four-act template. Part 3, well, that's just next-level dope shit. This isn't just another book on theory. Story by Numbers is a diagnostic toolkit for developing and fine-tuning your story. You'll also want to pick up the Story by Numbers workbook. For each story you're writing, you'll need a journal to organize your ideas. The Story by Numbers workbook is a companion notebook that walks you through the process as you outline your story and guide you through each phase of development, from constructing your protagonist's internal drive, to plotting conflicts that expose character, to composing scenes that drive compelling stories. By the time you've completed your story by number workbook, you'll be ready to finish your manuscript. Story by numbers, write more, better, faster, doper.
1: Signs was released in July 29th, 2002. Its runtime is an hour and 46 minutes, including credits. I always, I always struggle reading the runtimes because I'm like, it's not exactly, you can, why do you include the credits? But anyway. I know, so right? As soon as the credits,
0: I'm like, story's over.
1: Exactly. So how are we supposed to analyze the story structure? And they, and we go, okay. So the movie, it's it's an hour and forty six, and then this happens thirty minutes in. So it's this percentage in, and it's no, it's not really. So it's, it's I know. When, yeah. When
0: I was going through the timing, I was like, uh, it's opening credits is two and a half minutes, which means the hook. <laughs> yeah, the it's also true. But with the sound, anyway, right. the soundtrack plays into the hook. It plays directly That's into true. the mind state, and I yeah, love it sets I you it.
1: up. It sets you up, it it creates the appropriate environment. So yeah, it makes sense. Um, Its genre is, as described on IMDb, it's sci-fi, mystery, drama, but I would consider it a thriller as well, to be honest. It doesn't quite go to horror lengths, but it's definitely, I would consider it a thriller too. As mentioned, the writer and director is M. Night Shyamalan, operating at the height of his powers as far as I'm concerned. Um, it stars Mel Gibson, Joaquin Phoenix, Rory Culkin, and Abigail Breslin as like the cutest child you'll ever see in, in mm-hmm. a movie history. Um, the budget was $72 million. In its opening weekend, it almost made all of its budget back, $60 million um, return in its opening weekend. Gross revenue, $408 million. So I would call that quite the success. Um, on Rotten Tom- Tomatoes, tomatoes, uh, 75% critic score, 67% audience score. Not quite as, as popular with the audience as it was with the critics. Um, now real quick, does, does
0: Rotten Tomatoes, does that cover, like, that's the current rating? Or does that cover, like, the rating of the time of the, the release?
1: No, it's the current rating. Okay, I I wonder
0: how much that would have changed over the years because there has been a lot of like social, like commentary on, on it's like, when it came out, it got a lot of hype. And then it seems like, you know, 10 years later, people just started shitting on it. And um, I'm, I'm curious to see like how that changes over time.
1: Yeah. I I also find that a lot of the time, like films will, will appeal to a certain demographic, um for whatever reason and then it it, like i don't know whether that it does that continue going on through the years as well so like as i say i was 16 when this came out so there was a very you know very particular age range i'm 37 Mm -hmm. now um if it's like if the 16 year olds today are watching it will they enjoy it the same way or is it the 37 year olds today know that will watch it that will enjoy it like what you know sometimes it's demographics tend to kind of um show they obviously present a pattern um, I noticed, but certainly when I watched it at uh, back in the day, all of my male friends loved it. All of my female friends hated it. Absolutely despised no, really. it. That was, I found Your female that. female friends hated it? Yeah. 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 Like there was like six or seven different female friends of mine told me they couldn't stand it. And all of my male friends, they were all about it. So, huh. That's really, really intriguing. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Huh. I, I, you know,
1: who knows why that is, but <laughs> yeah, it was the way it was cool uh, so, so yeah so a box office
0: success a huge box office success it was like yeah. worldwide what 400 million
1: 408 million yeah
0: and this is it. it's not a franchise it's not um it's not part of a series it's a completely original film
2: mm-hmm. to do
0: 400 million worldwide is huge to do 200 million just domestically or in the u.s that's that's fantastic because that more than you know already doubled over its own budget um and yeah. then the timing that it came out i i think is really significant which we'll talk about after when we get
1: into like what the story means and stuff but um sure Absolutely. all right any
0: other thoughts why we just uh, kind of present oh
1: just a log line is is the last thing and again you know i I, well i I always just i grab the the imdb log line and they're not always the best but it's just i'm on the website anyway and i think one of the things that we that will be interesting for us to do at some point would be to kind of take a look at a log line then go through the dramatic structure and then at the end think okay how could we make this log line better based on what we actually uncovered about the movie but the log line for this film is a widowed former reverend living with his children and brother on a Pennsylvania farm finds mysterious crop circles in their fields, which suggests something more frightening to come, which I don't think does it as much justice as it deserves.
0: (laughs) I mean, I'll give it credit that it doesn't have spoilers and that it actually like, it's more of a tease than a log line. Mm -hmm, Um, mm -hmm. Just a quick plug uh, in my book. Uh, story by numbers, which is going to be coming out again very soon. It's going to be really, really soon. Um, I, I have a whole section about log lines and I, I take the IMDB log lines and I go through and deconstruct them or several IMDB and then say, okay, how can we make this a better log line that actually conveys the information we need to know? And, um, which I think would be a good, do you have a log line, like a personal log line that you would come up with to, to pitch this
1: for signs, No, I hadn't, I hadn't gotten, uh, gotten that far yet. I was, I was thinking that if I was, if I was to do one ahead of time and then we go through the dramatic structure and then I find out that there's more interesting and an interesting way of doing it, then I'd kick kicking myself. So, <laughs> well, how about we give this, our,
0: let's give ourselves an assignment by the end of this podcast. Let's come up with a new log line for signs.
1: Let's, let's do it. That's it. I don't
0: think it's that bad of a, like, what was the last one?
1: It's not not as intriguing as it could be. I'm not sure that that kind of opens people up to kind of going, Oh, I have to see this. It doesn't present.
0: Keep in mind a logline is different than a tagline or a teaser. Uh, Like it's a logline is supposed to represent the plot, what the story is about.
2: Mm -hmm. Um,
0: It's not, you know, and that's why IMDB kind of rides that line between the logline, which tells you what the story is and like, a hook that gets you interested and want to read more about or see the movie. Um,
1: but that last part where it says, which suggests something more frightening to come is a bit of yeah. a cop out. I think, Cause I think you could write something that implied that something more frightening is to come without saying, which suggests, you know, it just, yeah. I think it's a bit of a cop.
0: It's kind of like saying this movie is about something really bad happening. If you want to see it, you <laughs> got
2: to watch it. There you go. <laughs> I don't know what it is. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. This is it. I mean, like the fact that it's like, it sets up the protagonist by saying a widowed former reverend that guy, okay, that's perfect. Then that's, you know, that hits the nail on the head. It's exactly what we need to know about this guy going in, but mm-hmm. yeah, it does kind of, it kind of, it cops out at the end.
0: Okay, cool. Let's revisit the log line at the end of our discussion. Uh, cool. Great. That was a, that was a great presentation, a really successful movie. I uh, uh, let, let's dive into the structure. Okay, so we have about an hour, 40 minutes runtime, more or less, uh, from titles of credits. Um, and the first thing, of course, that we always want to do is identify the dramatic question, which is the, the big question that the whole uh, creates the spine of the entire narrative. This is what we wrap all of the drama around. The dramatic question is plot. Specifically, it's plot. It's not a thematic question. It's not, is this about faith or humanity it is, what is the problem the main character, the protagonist is setting out to solve? Um, so what is the dramatic question for science?
1: Okay. So in, I'm, I, I think I was fairly confident in the previous two podcasts we did as to what the dramatic question was, because I think it was very, it's blatantly obvious in those films what the, um, what the protagonist is setting out to do. What is his actual goal? Yeah. I think in, with this film, it's significantly more difficult from my perspective to identify what the goal is. It's never true. I don't believe it's, I'm, I could be completely wrong, but I don't believe it's, it's overtly stated. Um, the, so the, the protagonist is Graham Hess played by Mel Gibson definitely. and that he sort of, I don't believe that he is a passive character. He's definitely making decisions the whole time based on what's happening, but yeah. does he have a goal at any point... Sorry, I don't know why this is not enough. Does he have a goal that is clear from early on in the film, after the impetus? And I struggle with to come up with anything other than to protect his family, but we don't really know that there's an insidious, that there's, like, anything... Um, we don't know that, that there's, a, there's a hostility to the aliens for quite a while. So, I, yeah, I struggle to know. From, like, if he has a goal to achieve outside of protecting his family, I wasn't able to identify it.
0: Okay. That's uh, you got a really great start. So the, with the dramatic question uh, I always form it in the form of will. Uh, so future tense protagonist yeah. achieve X. Yeah. So we know the protagonist so I, I, I is Graham.
1: With, will Graham protect his family, which I don't think is, and I don't then think a, right.
0: Achieve uh, implies a verb. So we need to come up with a verb. And protect, I do think is a, the objective that he's trying to achieve, but the verb usually has to do with how they're going about achieving, achieving that objective. Okay. Okay. Interesting. So, Mm -hmm. and then X usually has to do with uh, what is the conflict they're facing. Mm -hmm. So in this case, what is the major conflict of signs?
1: That they're unsure as to the intention of the Aliens, and I, 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 initially, Graham doesn't even buy into the fact that it is aliens. It's yeah. it, he is the the biggest skeptic, um, right up which, to, the, to yeah. the point where he actually confronts one. And even actually, the very first time he actually physically confronts one, he still hasn't f- fully bought into it yet. So, yeah.
0: which is why the the structure is the way it, it, this is a this is a pretty unique story structure. At first, I thought it was fairly mm-hmm. conventional, but mm-hmm. uh, Shyamalan does some really interesting things, especially in the third and fourth act. Um, but the, uh, so, uh, so the main thing is the main primary conflict is an alien attack, not mm-hmm. just the presence of aliens, but the aliens are attacking. And but so do we know,
1: do we know they're attacking up until the point up in, Like it's more than halfway through the movie before we're aware that they're where they, before it's been declared in any way that they're hostile.
0: Yeah. So, but the thing that is, is we, we know that they're behaving as antagonists from the sure. beginning. OK, sure. So and we know that the, the whole story is basically will. So we know that he's also a former priest that is a father, mm-hmm. but he is literally a father to his own children and a kind of big brother to his brother, Merrill, uh, by Joaquin Phoenix. W- one of my favorite performances in the in the mm-hmm. movie. Uh, yeah. Mel Gibson, I, man, he's amazing in this movie. I love Mel Gibson, this movie. And it's it's great yeah. kind of getting some distance from all that time. I, I, haven't seen this, like the last time I saw it, uh, I wasn't married. So this movie, watching it again, recent for this podcast, like hit me in a completely different way. Like,
2: wow.
0: Hurt. It hurt to watch it. Um, wow. in, in a good way, like in a compelling way, yeah. like, yeah. Uh, so, um, so he's, he's a father. So I would say that like his specific verb, I would say that his objective, yes, is to protect his family and the way he's protecting his family. This is the struggle that he is fighting every single scene is he's trying to figure out how to guide them. He is somebody that is in the throes of a faith crisis. And before his faith would dictate everything for him, he knew how to guide them. So he Mm -hmm. keeps coming up with different strategies of how to help them make the decisions they need to make.
1: That's in great. order
0: to get them all safe.
1: Sure. So yeah. I would
0: yeah. argue that the dramatic question is, will Graham guide his family through the alien attack?
1: Okay. Okay.
0: So then the big yeah. question becomes at what point, what
1: point? Yeah.
0: do we cross from the first act um, where that, where that uh, where the question is posed and then he starts to take certain steps to be able to guide his family, to protect them from him. Which my favorite thing about this movie is most movies, they present aliens and right off the bat, people are like, Oh, okay. If there's aliens, let's go fight. And most of them do not articulate the strangeness of saying, wait, what? There's aliens. Hold on. This isn't real. Is it? Like you're playing with me. Like I'm not, there's mm-hmm. a skepticism, not just skepticism. There's a total denial until you're like, all right, this is a serious problem. We have to
1: address this. Do you yeah. remember
0: the moment where he says, all right, this, this is a problem I have to solve, and he actually takes the steps to do it?
1: I think the first problem, so he takes, so, so what, I, th- I think what is great about going into the second act is the number of different things happen where he starts to take a number of different acts to solving the problem as different information pops up. And so uh, it's kind of showing multiple different co- courses of action that could be taken up until the point where he where he realizes what he actually has to do, um, mm-hmm. rather than just kind of going the wrong way once. I feel like there's kind of multiple different kind of avenues he goes down. Um, a lot of it is just is deflection though, and and uh, denial. For me, based on what you've just described, I would say that so the. The information, once we see that, the breaking news on TV, so Bo tells him this is, it's the same channel on every station. So they go to the TV and they see this, the reports about the aliens. Then the cop tells him that he needs to take his mind off it. I think that, he, I think that his first reaction is to switch off the TV and go into town. I feel like that's the first action he takes is like, okay, I'm I going to, so if it's about guiding the family, step one is avoid this information, take them somewhere to distract them and not engage with it fully.
0: Mm -hmm. So, um, it's interesting. This is, this is probably the most unconventional thing about this movie. It's also what I love the most about this movie is that, you know, there's, there's this kind of, um, uh, the story device, uh, you might call it a trope. It, it's, it's something that, um, that a lot of screenwriters will use. And it's, you know, it's, it's the call to adventure and then the refusal of the call. And it's not until uh, so they accept the call that they sure. actually go out on the
1: adventure. Okay. So the refusal of the call is going into town.
0: Yeah. So the call to adventure would be, Hey, th- there's something going on here that is much bigger and you know that there's something going on here, but you refuse to say that there's, you know, the claim of an alien is a really fascinating parallel to this idea of a God and a belief in a sure. God. And oh, we're really going to get into
1: that later. <laughs> yeah, I hope so. I think it's,
0: I think it's really interesting, it, you know. And, okay. Um,
1: so, so if you're saying that it's sort of like a call from, call from the heavens almost – or a call um, to adventure.
0: We, we can take the mythological. Uh, no, but literally in,
1: it's a call to adventure. But in, in terms of like of, of the, you know, the aliens are representing something upon up, up high that is kind of mm-hmm. is inst- uh, instituting this call to to adventure. I would then say that, OK, if he's refused the call at first, then him accepting the call perhaps is the baby monitor scene. So he received, so like the baby I think you're monitor. very
0: close. I think you're very close. Um, I would still argue that he's in denial until one very specific moment, which ties into the metaphor, this really interesting, deeply layered metaphor that Shyamalan's using. Um,
1: so, okay. So,
0: so, let's talk about the relationship between the impetus and the dramatic question. The impetus is when the problem is presented in the story, it's not always when the problem is presented to the main character. But it is when we know that this is the problem the main character is going to have to reckon with. Now, in the the TV. what's that?
1: Which is the TV, right? Like when the the problem he's going to have to face is the. (laughs) Oh no! It's the it's no that's the it's the alien in there. (laughs) The alien on the bar bar next to the house.
0: Yeah. So the first time we see that it's an (laughs) alien. This isn't, you know, the Pritchard brothers or the Wolfington brothers. Okay. We see, we see an alien in silhouette. We know it's an alien. They uh-huh. might not know it, but as an audience member, that's why he's playing with dramatic irony. Because, yeah. you know, dramatic irony, there's dramatic tension, which asks the question of will this happen? Dramatic irony is where the audience knows that some impending conflict is coming, um, but the main characters aren't aren't aware of it. So he Mm -hmm. Shyamalan is activating dramatic irony for most of the first act. And I love it because you're, that's where that, that's that Hitchcockian feel that we're getting where there's tension. We know there's something going on and the main characters are saying, no, let's not engage it. Let's not engage Mm -hmm. it, which just builds Mm -hmm. the tension even more, um, which is a lot of the fun of this movie. So first, so that, that, that impetus, we'll just spoil it. The impetus is when we, uh, is when we see the alien on the roof for the first the time, roof. we sure. know for a fact that it's an alien and then them Doesn't chasing that. it. You know, we, we hear the noises. They don't show it. My favorite, one of my favorite things about this movie is the restraint that Shyamalan used for most of the movie in holding back, seeing the alien. Yeah. And
1: the yeah, way yeah. he
0: shows the alien most of the time are some of the most compelling alien uh,
1: footage that we've, we've seen. In yeah. 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 For sure. For sure. There's one in particular when they watch on the television, that's absolutely like, yeah, uh, that the, is
0: what was it? The, the birthday party
1: in uh, birthday party in, in Venezuela. Venezuela? Is it is Venezuela? Is it Brazil? Is oh, maybe it is Brazil. Because
0: the kids are speaking Portuguese in the video,
1: right? So, probably, yeah, it could be Brazil. Yeah. yeah, um So, yeah, no, that's an absolutely amazing. Like that, that whole scene is. Brilliant. That's
0: one of the great scares. Like that's one of the great. Like yeah. there's something about it. I, I wonder if it still has the impact. But I remember when I saw it, I was like, oh, my stomach dropped. Yeah, yeah.
1: I was scared. Totally. You almost believed it. Yeah. You almost literally yeah. bought into, Oh, that's real footage of, of an alien. Like such a smart way of doing
0: so, it. So anyway. So yeah. the impetus, we see the alien on the roof. The dramatic mm-hmm. question is when he accepts the call and says, all right, no more denial. No, no. We have He's to go. <laughs> and <laughs> Sorry
2: the, to use the, the
1: moment progress. he does
0: that. Yeah. The moment he does that is when he says he,
1: to is- uh, Isabel right before he walks into the, into the corn. He says to Isabel, "You're going to feel silly when this all turns out to be make believe." But then he walks. He still, that's into the still corn.
0: denial. He's still in denial. But then he so walks. when into he's the corn. in, the,
1: when he's in the cornfield, he sees the leg. Uh-huh.
0: You know, he's the corn stalker. And yeah, then yeah. he comes back in and he says to his family, "All right, turn on the television."
1: Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. When
0: he that's says, true. "All right, turn on the television." He says, he's saying, all right, we need to reckon with this. This is a problem. I am now fully persuaded. We're not dealing with the Wolfington brothers. There's no other explanation. I've been trying to keep this out of my house. There's no more holding back the water. We need to, we need to face this head on. So that's the moment where he accepts the call. And that happens uh, almost 40 minutes in. That's a good 36, 37 minutes. So that's the first act. Everything up Mm -hmm. into, if you went to credits, as soon as he says, all right, turn on the television, you're like, oh, fuck, what the fuck is going to happen next? I can't Mm -hmm. wait because that's when the, that's when we enter into, we cross the threshold into the second act, which is, all right, (laughs) what are we going to do when we start looking at, when we start learning that it is aliens? Because as an audience, we already know it's aliens. Mm -hmm. We already know. It's like, okay, he's not, this is no longer dramatic irony. This is dramatic tension. We know that he's going to be engaging these aliens directly or he's going to yeah. be, and already the subtext is I need to protect my family. And mm-hmm. the way he protects his family is through guidance. Very specifically, he's a kind of shepherd father, father type figure mm-hmm. and, and literally a father. All right. So, uh, from, from the dramatic question, we jump over to the climax. Oh, and what would you say the, uh, the climax to the dramatic question is, so, Will he guide his family through the alien attack safely?
1: The, the moment that he says, so he has, obviously he has the reverie of his wife's death.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And when he realizes, when he finally has that belief, that moment where it's like, this is all happening for a reason, he says to Merrill, swing away. So he's told Merrill what Merrill needs to do. When the alien is that, his,
0: is that his final? Is that the final conflict? Is Meryl swinging away?
1: Well, the final conflict may be when he's outside, and the boy that his so Morgan, the son who's asthmatic, is um. I'd, I'd like if it's about guiding the whole family, though, I'd say it's all the one. But the, but he's out uh-huh. holding on to Morgan on the ground and he's saying, His lungs are closed. His lungs are closed. It didn't mm-hmm. go in. His lungs are closed. So yeah. he's like, He's made, he's like, I believe now. Yeah. I 100%. Uh, I, and so it's sort of like so reengaging like is, his faith. Reengaging the faith. And yeah. yeah so like, And it's his it faith
0: me- that gave him the wisdom to guide the family.
1: Mm hmm. Mm hmm which Which is is, what he was doing initially up before. So he was guiding his
0: son through the asthma attack and through dealing with Mm -hmm. the poison and also Mm -hmm. activating his faith saying Mm -hmm. this is the right thing to do. So he, Mm -hmm. he guided Morgan, he guided Bo, he guided Meryl all in that fourth act. And he guided them once he had the uh, revelation from his wife, from his wife's last words, which is, this is another movie where the climax is completely based around a wife, a dying wife's last words, which is really mm-hmm. cab. brutal. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, yeah. So, I would say that the climax is the answer to the dramatic question is yes. By following the wisdom of his wife's last words, he guides his family through the alien attack, and
1: mm-hmm. it's not
0: until he he and it's and it's through the process of being able to accept the last words that, uh, he gets that, that wisdom and is able to activate his faith again. Um, but it's not so- even
1: the, the content of her words. It's, it's, it's even more like, cause she's saying some things that might be kind of might seem completely incidental, except for the fact that he's putting two and two together and realizing that all of this happened for a reason. So it's like, like the wife's mm-hmm. words are less the, um, are less the revelation then it is that actually someone has been guiding this whole situation the whole time. The words are the evidence. The, the wife's words are the evidence that, so, that there is someone up there guiding, guiding everything, but it's That's that revelation. Of
0: That's a good distinction. Someone,
1: there is someone actually uh, who made all this happen. It's the most tragic thing in my whole life that I lost my wife, but that, that the images that she was able to conjure during her final moments gave me the, the things that I needed to be able to protect my family in this situation, which means that everything happens for a reason.
0: Yeah. Yep. Which starts to deal with, uh, with theme quite a bit. Uh, so we have the kind of overall structure. Will he guide his family through the alien attack? The climax is yes, he will. Uh, and then from there, we would normally do the impetus after that. Cause we want the, the dramatic question and climax form the spine uh, of the mm-hmm. structure. And uh, then we, from there, track to the impetus to present the presentation of the conflict. Mm. Um, and that you, that happens right when the alien's on the roof, was, which is right about 13 minutes in, which is about typical for an impetus. An impetus usually tends to be in a two-hour feature film. It tends to be about 15 minutes in. And the dramatic question usually happens about 30 minutes in, which means this has a little bit of a longer first act, but never wasted. Like it earned the first act. It earned the 40 minutes. Because it created this really, uh, the characterization in this movie is, I love it. And it also opens it up quite a bit more. Like the movie takes on a very subjective point of view of this cataclysmic scenario. Mm
1: -hmm. And it tells
0: it from a very subjective point, which I I love that about it. And that first act really helped to build the momentum of everything that follows.
1: You still have the stakes from watching the TV, so you you get that outside outside look at this is what's happening in Brazil, this is what's happening in in various locations around the world because you're seeing what the breaking news is showing. But this, yeah. the whole story is really co- completely focused on this one family on a farm in the middle of nowhere in Pennsylvania. Yeah,
0: which I think Arrival actually um, can you could you could draw a line between Arrival and Signs the way Mm -hmm. they, the way she was experiencing it from, you know, watching it on television and that subjectivity of like, I'm not sure this is true, you know, and Mm -hmm. questioning media is a big part of of Villeneuve in particular, but I also think it it plays into this uh, metaphor as well. Um, Okay. So from there, once we have those, that spine, we want to look at the midpoint and low point to look at what the emotional arc is and what the, what the growth and character development is. Um, so what is the midpoint plot speaking? What is the midpoint
1: of signs? Okay. I feel a little bit more confident with the midpoint, low point and hook, but I'm still probably going to end up being wrong. Um, so <laughs> <laughs> I
2: wait
1: midpoint. till you tell me
0: so I can contradict you later. That's, that's my absolutely.
1: Strategy. <laughs> it's all about cutting the rug from under me. Uh, yeah. So the, the, the midpoint for me, I believe is alien in the pantry because that's the point where it becomes very real for, for, for Graham that they're definitely real because he, st- he goes into the, into the kitchen and he's still mm-hmm. talking to them. He hasn't fully believed yet. Even though he saw the alien in the, in the, in the corn, he still doesn't fully believe because he walks into the kitchen in, in Ray's house and he says, come out with your hands up, we've got you surrounded, all that jazz, because he believes that it's still an imposter. He calls it a hoax still, and so he see, when he sees the alien hand come out and reach for him, not only does he see it's an alien hand, but that's also when he decides that he believes that they're hostile because he comes back to the family and says, "I saw one of them in the pantry. I think it tried to hurt me
0: but but how does how would that make that a midpoint
1: because where're instead of being still on this journey of not knowing exactly what the aliens are there to do. And, and uh, is is my family in danger now, it's sort of like the falling action of, Oh, I know th- things are really bad now because I know that the aliens are hostile. And every single point in the third act from that point is more and more doom and gloom because they're definitely hostile. There's there are, um, it's only go- it's going from bad to worse from that point onwards because they're real. I hurt one. Cause it wanted to hurt me, and now like I'm, there's no hiding from this anymore. They were literally inside my neighbor's house.
0: Uh, well, I got some bad news for you, Cahill. (laughs) I figured you would. (laughs) So, I would say that the midpoint is alien in the pantry. (laughs) I totally agree with you. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Every, every reason you articulated is exactly why I would call it the midpoint. I think you completely nailed it. It it (laughs) happened exactly at the hour, one hour. So in an almost two hour movie, the midpoint, that's, that's kind of right on schedule. So it has a long first act, but a fairly short second act that was perfect for it. Uh, Anything, Mm -hmm. any longer up to the midpoint, I would have started feeling like it was dragging, but I never felt like it was dragging.
1: No, not at all. And that's why, I struggle with the notion that you have to have specific
2: yeah. plot
1: points on specific pages of the script. that drives me mental, especially when it co- yeah. when people tell me you have to do this in a certain way. Like I, you know, when I write my scripts, I have to think about the fact that I've got to sell these scripts to people. And, and if, I'm, if I'm being told you have to have the exciting incident on page 12, or they're not going to scroll past it anymore. I'm like, but it doesn't mm-hmm. belong there in this story. So it's infuriating. So it's nice to see really successful films just show that that's, you know, it's mm-hmm. not the, it's not the only game in town.
0: Yeah, that's that's one of the things I think we're learning from doing this process of diagramming the, the uh, story structure is that all of these are breaking conventions. These are very mm-hmm. successful movies, successful in the story sense and the artistic sense and the way that it's like landing with us, but also successful financially. These are you know mm-hmm. box, blockbusters,
1: mm-hmm.
0: uh, successful in the box office, and they all have they're all breaking story conventions, but in a way that are meaningful. And that's that's the real takeaway: is you need to structure your story according to what the needs of the story are. Absolutely, the, needs story, of the story have to do with the characterization and the plot.
1: Yep,
0: absolutely. Cool. So midpoint, we're on the same page there. Totally agree. Very well said.
1: <laughs> uh, so
0: from the midpoint, we want to track the low point. Okay, this, this is where I think this one, this film gets really unconventional. Oh,
1: hold on. So the, uh, obviously, the low point.
0: What's
1: the most emotional think, gut-wrenching... Think, the most gut-wrenching emotional gut-wrenching moment. moment is locked in the basement. Morgan has just had the incident with the alien where he's now had an asthma attack. He's locked in the basement. They don't have the inhaler anymore. And so, he, so again, his son is his in a position... Graham's son is in a position where he, he... If he doesn't control his breathing, he might die. And mm-hmm. while Graham then holds him close to his heart... And he's trying to help him. He says, breathe with me, breathe with me. And while he's trying to get the son to breathe, he acknowledges God directly for the first time and says, I hate you. Yeah. For me, that's... Let me ask
0: you this. What's more devastating? Feeling helpless and being scared your child might die or actually watching your wife die in a brutal accident? In in the movie, so the way the thinking, movie presented it, yeah, what was yeah. more I devastating?
1: I understand where you're coming from, but the fact that it is a reverie, I feel like if it's if we're following the arc, the the death, because the moment the moment that the the film chooses to show us the the wife the wife's death is giving us the information that's actually going to save the day at the end of the day. Do you know what I mean? It's actually yeah, that's, the, the a, that's a really good point. The, yeah. of the information that's going to save the day. Whereas the moment where he acknowledged like his son is he needs to get his son to calm down to help his son breathe. And he acknowledges God for the first time, but tells him I hate you. I feel like that is for me is the lowest that he could possibly sink. This is a guy who was a former reverend. This person spent his whole life dedicated to God. Then he turned his back on him because of what happened to his wife. He threw away his faith. He threw away his job. He's turned his back on his community. He's not guiding his family properly, but he's just, he turned his back on the Lord. And it's now when he's finally in the basement, he thinks he's about to lose his son on top of everything. And he actually addresses God face to face and says, I hate you. I think that's the lowest he can possibly go.
0: I believe you can make a point for it. Um, But I, I think you can make a point for it when it comes to uh, the thematic and the characterization, but the moment Mm -hmm. that was the most devastating. And I think this was done on purpose. The moment that was most devastating. The movie is watching the death of his wife. I do believe that that is the low point and it needs to be the low point. It's different than, uh, the the, the the character arc that he's going through. It's the, it's, and the idea is that he is living his life through the aftermath of a low point where he is suspended. He's trying to avoid the emotional low point of losing his wife. Most of his uh, refusal to engage his faith, his denial of uh, the belief in God and things like that, is completely rooted in the idea that he rejects that his wife, wife's death was the good thing or the right thing for him. So because of that, he won't look at it. He won't think about it. He won't even say the words, which I, that's what I, what resonated is so truthful about the movie was that he was so traumatized by it that he can't even engage it. And his faith in God was directly connected to his love for his wife, which creates that whole uh, faith crisis. Um, I would argue that it's that is still that is the emotional low point of the film,
1: even the, though the farewell it's to his on.
0: wife. But I do. I also think you're correct. That moment of uh, of his faith crisis being a kind of um, Dark, like literally uh, we need to turn the flashlights off and they're in the basement and it goes completely mm-hmm. pitch black. Mm-hmm. Um, it says we should say the batteries. Um, I do think that that is a, uh, a character low that still propels us, but I still think emotionally it goes so much heavier and so much harder when he's sitting there looking his, at his wife. And I think that's on purpose. I think that's un- successfully executed that way. So uh, he's using a different plot point at that moment. And I would call that the epiphany. And his epiphany um, happens uh, right at that moment where he's where he's saying, "Don't be afraid, don't be afraid." He's literally telling his son. He's giving his son the lesson that he needs to learn.
1: Okay. And He's literally saying,
0: I-, "I am you. We are the same. Don't be afraid. Believe it will pass." Okay. And it's in the midst of him engaging his anger that he also teaches himself the less he teaches his son, the lesson he needs to learn, believe it will pass. Don't be afraid.
1: Let me push back on that. Cool. Let me push back. I would reverse those completely. And reason being is that generally speaking, generally speaking. And I I think that you did in, in when you were looking, when you did your character video, I am pretty sure that you talk about this as well in terms of, in terms of like the, the way that it's structured in terms of the, um, the, the low point versus the having the having the epiphany i believe the low point needs to come first you don't have your epiphany before you have your low point you have your low point and then you have your epiphany right and so i believe that the, the low point is the moment where he's where he has to actually turn and, and face God. And, and, and again, one of the things that I would say on that, just from my perspective, you know, all cards on the table, I'm a Christian. So it me, mean, it means puts me in the position of feeling like no matter what, if I lost my, I don't have any kids, but I obviously intend to have some, if I lost my kids, if I lost my wife, those things are absolutely devastating, but nothing would be more devastating to me than losing my faith because God is the top of the hierarchy is top of the food chain. Then it's, you know, whoever else among your family and friends and whatever on the way down. So I think losing, no matter how devastating something happens in your life, losing Mm -hmm. that connection with God when you are a person of faith is the lowest you can possibly go. The absolute lowest you can go. And Mm -hmm. I think that so he's at the lowest point when he's actually going to talk to God face to face, say, I hate you. Then the epiphany that he has is when he sees the alien that moment where he realizes what he has to do is the epiphany. And he has that epiphany when he has the reverie again of all the things that the wife says, swing away, Meryl, swing away. He mm-hmm. looks to the bat and sees like, Oh, lights on. This is it. This is what it was all about. That's an epiphany moment. And that's when he tells Meryl swing away, grabs the boy, gets out of Dodge.
0: I think that's a really good point, especially coming from like, the way we're interpreting, you know, full cards on the table. I'm, uh, I'm not a believer. I am an atheist or whatever Mm -hmm. agnostic atheist. There's not a, I'm unpersuaded by the claims, uh, of that there's a God from different religions. That's my Mm -hmm. position. Um, but, uh, but I come, uh, you know, my, my backstory is I, I came from a very religious background. Um, so I'm very sympathetic to the emotional, uh, experience of what it would be like. So, So, you know, the, the belief of, of saying like denying the Holy spirit or not denying or saying, I hate you, God is the ultimate blasphemy, mm-hmm. um, much more so than saying, you know, I'm really hurt that my, that you took my wife, you know, mm-hmm. um, For a man but of faith, I think there's a good long case. Long there's there's a good go. case to be made. The The question comes down to when it comes to structuring this with plot, um, And, and the plot is about strategies and the strategies determine where the act breaks are and how the, how we structure the sequences. And there is a very specific change that happens at what I call the epiphany um, where he's saying, don't be afraid, believe it will pass. And there's a very specific epiphany and it has to have that epiphany before he can face his wife and experience the revelation she has for him the revel- revelation for him as well as for us, the audience. Uh, so that's why I would argue that it, that that uh, is the epiphany, but it's not the low point. And most of what I'm saying is emotionally, that moment of being terrified of losing your child. Like I also don't have kids yet, but the thought of like losing my wife is the most horrifying thing I can imagine. And under those circumstances, the com- the comparison between like, that was really scary versus no, the, the person you value most in the world is taken from you in this brutal way. That's devastating. So I would say that the epiphany is what helped him to uh, be able to have the strength to face that low point. And that's when the low point gave the revelation and a, an epiphany, I would say is different than the revelation. The epiphany is that shift in values and the shift in values changes, which allowed him to uh, get the wisdom that he needed from his wife and give, and that wisdom is what allowed him to guide his family, give the guidance that each of them need to get through this conflict.
1: Okay. Um, I would, so because of I'll that, I, to- go ahead. Oh, sorry. No, go on. Sorry. You weren't finished. Go on.
0: Oh, I was going to transition into uh, that's, that's how we get the act structure out of this. Uh, okay. And I think you'll agree. You'll agree when we see the act structure. That this is kind of how, uh, oh, actually, let, let's talk about act structure in a second, because we do need to talk about the hook, because the hook is, mm-hmm. is very important. What, what's the hook of the movie?
1: The hook of the movie is screams in the cornfield. Um, so at the very start of the film, <laughs> we have, we have uh, Graham waking up. He looks a little bit disturbed, but, uh, but nothing really going on. We just get get a really weird feeling, especially we've come off that, that introduction of the movie where you've got the music playing over the, yeah. the, the title credits. So it already feels a little ominous. So he gets up and he's going about his day. We see that the cross is now missing from the wall and has left a stain on the wall, brushing his teeth. Suddenly he hears his daughter Bo, screaming. And then he has got, and then he hears it again. He's got to go running into the cornfield to find out what is going on. His brother. Meryl comes out too. They both race into the cornfield. They find the two children and they are now standing in a crop circle. When he asks them what's wrong, they're standing in a crop circle.
0: Yeah, exactly. So when that presentation of the crop circle, fantastic sequence. Like that Mm -hmm. moment of like when he wakes, uh, he's hypervigilant. Like he's in a state of hypervigilance. He's in a state of like uh, disorientation. I don't know what's going on. It's the perfect psychological uh, a state to for for this character to be in we immediately know that he is somebody that feels very disoriented and like like he has to like he's spreading himself thin I love that opening and his performance uh, Mel Gibson's performance in it is really heartbreaking because you're he's like I'm just trying to hold his family together and I feel like everything's falling apart around me and then mm-hmm. the crop circles are come in and it's just this great surreal moment and then it cuts to that great. This is before drones, so it was a helicopter shot. Did you notice know the right. difference when you were watching it?
1: No, it, no, no, it's not something that would have occurred to me. Yeah, it's no.
0: it's a helicopter shot and you can tell because of it's such a jarring shot. Like nowadays they would have they would have cut from, you know, they would have had like that that low uh beautiful shot of his feet stepping across the threshold into the cornfield into the crop circle.
2: And, and it would have gone from close up to
0: but instead yeah, it yeah, cut yeah, to yeah. a helicopter down shot and then sure. the helicopter flew up. And it's just, it's great. Cause it's, it changes the language of it, but it still, it still works really well. This part of what I loved yeah, about yeah. it was that it was, this was definitely pre-drone uh, before yeah. a lot of uh, CG had taken over a lot of the effects. Nice. A lot of this was practical. Nice. The, the, the crop circles were practical. They actually went in and did that in a field that wasn't CG. Wow. A lot of respect nice. for that. Yeah. 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 So uh, once we got the, so we got the landmarks, the hook, the impetus, the dramatic question, the midpoint, low point, uh, and then an epiphany, which is uh, uh, he's using that as a major landmark. A lot of times the epiphany is part of the fourth act after the low point. But I think um, Shyamalan is doing something unconventional with structure that works really well. Um, and we, uh, we see that the act structure is broken down into the first act, good 40 minutes, the second act, uh just over 35 minutes um not quite and then the fourth act or the third act quite a bit of time from the pantry all the way to the epiphany because at the end of the epiphany when they turn the lights off it kind of goes quiet and it's almost like you could feel a commercial break coming and then mm-hmm. we go come back to um the or we go to the uh what do you call it or the reverie the flashback the
1: accident mm-hmm. flashback mm-hmm. yeah so it's, where- a, it's a memory so yeah yeah
0: so that, that's more than we- a flashback
1: thing into his brain.
0: <laughs> yeah, and it, the thing I love about it was I think Shyamalan was the way he's presenting this perfectly articulated the uh what what the way these sequences unveil themselves. Uh, what what I would say is the the stages of grief. And mm-hmm. um and I think each act serves to represent the process of those stages of grief. Now this isn't in the order of the traditional stages of grief, but I would say the first act is denial. The second act is the bargaining. The third act is the anger. And then the fourth act is acceptance. And it's structured that way. You know, like there's that whole thing of like, you know, they say you're going to go through these different stages until you finally accept it. And you can live a more complete integrated life with dealing with a trauma. Mm-hmm. Um, but the reality is you jump all over the place. And I think this movie really illustrated that you, through the metaphor of aliens. Mm-hmm. Um <laughs> So, uh, so from there, a uh, quick overview, let me just jump through this real quick. Uh, real quick overview. We, we've got the crop circles. Then we go to offer officer Paskey. Uh, I love that actor. What, what's her name? Is it Sherry Jones? She's so good.
1: Oh, uh, I never, uh, made a note for her name, but anyway.
0: Oh, Cherry Jones. That's her name. Yeah. She's, Cherry. I love her. She's so charismatic and she plays it kind of almost like a Stephen King character, which is a lot, a lot of what I love about Shyamalan is he, he feels very much like, you know, he, he's very much a Spielberg, Stephen King uh, deals with mystery, but also lots of great characterization and depth. Um, so we got officer Pasky tour. She's touring the crop circles and it mm-hmm. uh, culminates with uh, Houdini, their dog attacking the kids and they, they do the one thing you're not supposed to do in the movies is they kill the dog.
1: And this movie, they do it twice. (laughs)
0: Yes. (laughs) The the first one is like disturbing. The second one's infuriating.
2: Yeah.
1: yeah, Uh, And we'll get,
0: we'll get to that. So then uh, we get the impetus, the aliens on the roof, officer Paskey comes back and she's playing kind of this, this great, uh, I love her character in this. She, she plays it as this, like she's both maternal but also this uh, she's kind of a, a a gentle authority where she's mm-hmm. she's becoming the she's becoming kind of the guide through this. She's modeling the kind of calm and reasonable thinking that uh, everybody else is really struggling to hold on. And she knows uh, how to
1: interrogate without elevating the tension. Like she does. She yeah. creates a just tension to get them to do what she wants or to, you know, to, to manipulate, kind of, don't talk to me like that. Yeah. You know, maybe you should think about things this way, but she doesn't kind of, be, she's not overbearing about it.
0: Yeah. And you trust her. Like you, you want to be yeah. on her side. She's great. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then we start seeing while she's the, in there, the, um, that scene of officer Paskey when she comes back the next day and, Uh, saying, you know, this is, you know, this is probably just the Wolfington brothers and they're probably just screwing around with you. Uh, That culminates with the television in the background saying, you know, all the, all the channels are are on the same program, which is Mm -hmm. that the signs are showing up all over the world. Um, And so then we're saying, okay, this isn't just their backyard. This is everywhere around the world. Uh, And so from there we get this uh, sequence where they go into town and this is a long sequence, uh, it's it ends up being about twelve minutes where they're I call it the end of the world errands where they're just going into town and they're like all right no TV we're just gonna do our shopping uh, and everybody gets the thing I love about this is we get to explore how everybody deals with uh, the sublime and the sublime it, it, it's this philosophical idea that um, that the sublime is kind of uh, the presentation of something that is incredibly Terrifying And at the same time, so immense, so otherworldly that it's beautiful. So it's, mm-hmm. it's the collision of the beautiful and the terrifying all at once. And, you know, what a lot of people would think of as, as the apocalyptic feeling uh, or the revelatory feeling of something so like standing before a tidal wave. It's this incredible force of nature that we can barely comprehend and it's going to destroy you. And all of this is kind of an exploration of how different people approach the sublime. I thought it was a really great se- uh, sequence of scenes, uh, which all culminates back with the baby monitor where mm-hmm. they all join hands together as a family and hold the, the hold it up to the sky. And the, the monitor is, I love it because it's a great metaphor for, for prayer, how it's mm-hmm. a one way conversation and you're listening in on something, but it's, it's, you're, you're not quite tuning it. And that becomes a metaphor for like prayer and then faith where it's like, you know, he's, he's cutting himself off from it. Mm-hmm. Um And then we get the scene at night where he goes out the corn stalker <laughs> and uh, he sees the, he, he sees, he hears somebody out in the corn stalks, chases him out there. And that's when he sees that leg camouflaged in the corn stalks. Yeah. And then it all comes down to the dramatic question after he comes back from that. That's when he's like, all right, no more denial. Turn on the TV. Absolutely. Um, yeah. And then we go to uh, the conversation where they're sitting there watching television. Kids have that's fallen. One asleep. of
1: my favorite scenes. I love yeah. that scene so much. Yeah. It's a great the scene. That conversation. It's so good.
0: Yeah. Joaquin Phoenix. So originally it was going to be Mark Ruffalo was going to play the Merrill oh. Hest, which I, I like, I, especially like you know, that's around the time of uh, uh, Eternal Sunshine and the Spotless Mind. Eternal Sunshine, mm-hmm. yeah. And I, I really liked a lot of a lot of his performances, especially back then. Um,
1: I can't imagine this movie without Joaquin Phoenix. Seriously, I know. he brings so I I much wanna, depth. I want to see him and Mel Gibson in a movie together again. Like, just yeah. get the two of them back together. They're so good in this
0: film. Yeah, they had incredible chemistry. I, I totally believed them as brothers. I love it. Yeah. Um, and then we have the first flashback of the accident and it's, it's that combination of like, and the thing I love about it, well, we'll talk about this a little bit. So flashback of the, of the accident, then I call it tinfoil diaries. This is where they're, you know, they got the tinfoil hats on. They're watching TV. Um, it's the next day and they're, you know, he's like, they're still kind of bargaining. They're trying to say like, okay, yes, this is a weird problem, but is it a real problem? You know what? This isn't something we have to tackle with everybody's blowing it out of proportion. Yes, it's weird, but we don't know if this is something, we don't know if it's alien still. We just know that it's something that we, it's so probably it's something we need to deal with as an audience member. We're like, Oh no, it's aliens. And they're on your back porch. Mm-hmm. Um, so then he goes to Ray Reddy's house. Uh, really, Another scene. really powerful scene. Um, it, it's one of those. It's so hard. I not knowing I can't imagine the movie now. I can't imagine not knowing that it's Shyamalan playing Ray Reddy. Um, <laughs> I think he did fine. Like
1: he did, he did. I, I, a lot of people complain that he put himself in his own movie and in such a pivotal role, but when yeah. you watch it, I try and watch it without the blinkers on without, without, without thinking of it, uh, with the bias of, Oh, this guy's such an egotist that he's put himself in his own movie. Yeah. I, and. It, uh, I don't, I don't
0: agree with that. Cause I think, I think, I think there are lots of great directors who are also great actors. Yeah. My, my only problem with this performance is I'm just imagining what it would be like to, to deal with, you know, this is maybe a year since his wife has passed. I don't remember. Do they say in the movie how long it's been since she's passed? Six months. Six. Yeah. Like, that's fresh. Those nerves are fresh. And I think Ray Reddy, what he's conveying to him is, is devastation. Or what he's saying to him would be devastating and guilt combined with, I get it. But also, like, don't, don't think I wanted this or don't think I feel horrible that this happened to me and I feel so responsible. Mm-hmm. I don't feel like Shyamalan quite conveyed the depths of devastation that it would feel to be responsible for the death of another person. Like he should have just maybe, but that's an artistic choice. I think in the end he did an adequate job. I think it, it served the story well enough. I think Mel Gibson's performance was so committed to the tragedy.
1: Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that I felt that. it. Maybe you needed the foil because if they were both crying, neither of the tears matter. I think and it's I'm not even matter. saying
0: crying. I'm saying like I didn't feel the torment. I, I felt like he was deeply concerned, but I felt aware of his acting. Mel Gibson I felt was in hell, like going through hell the entire way, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know? Yeah.
1: But and, I do think, again, I feel like you, you need that juxtaposition. I feel like if, if you saw Emily Shyamalan going through hell because of what he did, I don't think it would be quite as devastating to watch uh, Graham reliving Perhaps,
0: it. but then the apology felt a little insincere. I'm really sorry about what I did to you and yours.
1: Because of the theme, though. He's not saying, he never once said, I'm sorry for killing your wife. He said, I'm sorry for doing for what I did to you and yours. I'm sorry I robbed you of your faith and you can no longer guide your children. Yeah. Because he, he says very, very clearly just a moment before that he's like, I know it's my fault that you gave up the cloth. You know what I mean? Yeah. So that's why he uses those Which, words. He does not I say, do, I'm sorry. I don't want me. to labor
0: it too much. Like, with, like, I think he did a fine job. I think it was really good. Ooh. And then also like any actor up against someone like Mel Gibson, who is an iconic character, he's an iconic actor. Mm -hmm. So like an iconic actor, like, um, you know, Tom Cruise or like, yeah, uh, you're in that. Well, they're, 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 it's not just that they're good actors. It's that they play them like it's Jack Nicholson is always Jack Nicholson, but he's Jack Nicholson playing that compelling character Mm -hmm. and Mel Gibson. It's like, you don't really stop seeing Mel Gibson, but you believe he's in this world. You believe he's feeling what he's feeling. Tom Cruise I always believe he's feeling what he's feeling. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Jack Nicholson i can never right?
1: understood this stick that he gets. So. Yeah,
0: they're not pretending to be different people, mm-hmm. but it doesn't matter because they're so compelling. And I get that with Mel Gibson. And, so, and that's what I mean by iconic. It's it's his his character, like his acting takes over the character, but it does it in a compelling way versus an an actor like uh like someone that disappears into the character, like, you know, like a John Malkovich or like a Tilda Swinton
2: um,
0: mm-hmm. who, you, you know, there's sometimes you're watching and you're halfway through the movie. You're like, is that Tilda Swinton? And you've been watching yeah. her the entire time. She's so immersive and she's a chameleon where she, she's also iconic in the sense of like, she creates characters that are unforgettable, uh, but she disappears into those characters
2: mm-hmm.
0: and she, she can, she embodies this full range of performance I'm not sure I see like a full range of performance from, you know, other iconic actors, but it doesn't matter because they're compelling as the, the actors.
1: They play. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So yeah, that's that said, I think,
0: you know, Mel it Gibson. It would have been
1: interesting is- to see Mark Ruffalo as Ray. That would have been, that yeah. would have been really cool. Just to see how that would have gone down. But we'll never see that now. Mark
0: Ruffalo as Ray? Or as, as Ray? You
1: know? No, 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 no. Imagine say, say, uh, Mel oh, Gibson as yeah. Graham. But Mark Ruffalo as Ray, right. what, yeah. what would that scene have been like?
0: See, that would be – I do think uh, Ruffalo is, has that full range. I think he's mm-hmm. he's also really compelling. Like, But yeah. Joaquin Phoenix is – uh, he's, he's one of my favorite actors of all time. He's up there. Um, yeah, I think he's absolutely brilliant and
2: immersive. You can't replace him in this.
1: Unbelievable.
0: Yeah. So, so then we go from Ray Rady's house to the pantry alien. I love the way you articulated the midpoint totally agree with that and then he comes back and rather than you know take the you know patriarchal father this is what we're going to do he comes back and says let's have a vote
2: mm-hmm.
0: and he has everyone vote and he gets outvoted and he actually mm-hmm. he gets outvoted and they he goes with what he's outvoted he doesn't override it or veto it he mm-hmm. says all right are we going to go to the lake or stay here and they end up staying there in the house mm-hmm. um and that's and then at the the culmination of that scene is when we learn that the lights are coordinated with the signs so the crop circles are indicating a strategy for attack this is when Navigation. we learn oh shit these aren't just a weird phenomena they're coming for us and mm-hmm. we need to get ready and then we have from there they start prepping the house and we have the last supper scene a uh, beautiful scene and this is this i you I know i started it. the emotion like it was going down quite a bit from the midpoint, and then it's a really sweet, beautiful scene where they're all just hugging. It had that great, my a f- great touch of uh, Shyamalan playing in there, where he's he's hugging his kids, and then he just has that great cutaway scene where he shows Joaquin Phoenix and he just reaches over and grabs him and pulls him yeah, in absolutely. the shot. I yeah, love it because yeah. he's it's, just like, no, this, we're all family. This is all connected. Yeah. I love oh, that. Oh,
1: hundred percent, a hundred percent. And I feel like from i i i grew up as a as. Um, a child of divorce. My, I was born in, in the UK. My parents got divorced when I was four years old. The reason I'm Irish is because my mum was Irish. She brought me back here a year after the divorce. And so I spent a lot of my, my, my life very distant from my father um not like not not in terms of emotionally emotionally like he's my best friend like we were you know we're, we're as tight as anything but it's just uh locationally like he always had to travel over here every few weeks mm-hmm. spend a few hours with me and my brother and then go back home and that was the way it was for a long time until you got to the stage where flights were cheaper um mm-hmm. But it, it, it's uh, I, I always have a heart for father-son stories. And that scene just gets me every time for the fact that he's, you know, they're desperately saying, like, at different points in the story, they're basically like, please be the man of faith again. We need you. Yeah. We need you. And he's resisting. He's like, no, I'm not spending one more minute on prayer. It's not happening. He's so enraged. He even turns to his, what, two-year-old, three-year-old, whatever age she is daughter and says stop crying giving out to her when she's when she's distraught so they're all just like they're so disconnected at that point but then when he starts to cry and morgan his son looks at his father crying and he's like i i can't stand it i just just told this man that i hate him i told my uncle that i wish he was my father but then i see my dad struggling with what he's going through and now there's tears streaming down his face I have to run to this man and, and wrap my arms around him. And like, and so Morgan gets up from the table and goes over to his dad. Like that for me, it's just like, Oh yeah. We you do know.
0: need to call out Rory Culkin. Like mm. how old uh, Rory Culkin was, I think what, eight years old, nine years old.
1: So he was born in, Oh, it's not showing up on his IMDb. Why is it not in your, Oh yeah. He was born in 1986. So he would have been 13.
0: Oh, okay. Oh, I, right, sorry. I 1989 so he would have been 13 yeah yeah amazing performance from that kid like yeah all of them i That's thought were really fantastic i totally believed all the kids and yeah. also you know a lot of the kind of spielbergian uh characterization and stuff like the playful stuff i love it mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. okay so then we go to what i think is one of the infuriating scenes we forgot. <laughs> even though. Yeah. They forgot their dog tied up outside. They're preparing for war and they forgot to bring their dog in.
1: Now you needed that scene though. Like it's almost it, a plot it, contrivance. It's
0: such a great scene. Yeah. Like the moment where they hear their dog being killed and the aliens yeah, yeah, yeah. are literally at the door. The wolf is at yeah, the door. Yeah. It's horrifying. I wish they came up with a better reason than we forgot. That's what kills me. Like, like maybe I, I there's I, I, like a door, there was a door that they missed and the dog ran out because they're trying to protect. Mm. I would have bought that, but I don't buy. I'm a big dog lover and yeah, you yeah, know, yeah. I just lost my dog last year and she was 13 Ooh. years old. And I, I, there's no part of me that would, that would have forgot. I'm literally getting ready for battle. I'm getting all of my family and everybody close together and I forget the do- But this family could have a different relationship with their dog. For me, that's like losing a child. I don't, I
1: don't it did care. seem like, to be fair, I, I, I completely agree with you. Any of the dogs that I've had in my household growing up were basically like my mom called them her other children. Like they yep. were, they were, my, they, they were yeah, like, yep. I had two, two Pomeranians that I lost in, in the last year as well. And yeah. uh, there's a boy and a girl, they were brother and sister. And, but I, we like, we would refer to them as though they were my brother and sister my brother and sister do you know what I mean? yeah. because they're part of the family. And yeah. so I get that, but I also have, I've lived in, like I'm from the city in in, in uh, Dublin in Ireland. I've also had relationships with people who I've spent time with in, in rural Ireland where animals are just, they're working dogs, especially yeah. the larger ones. And yeah. you, is are two German shepherds right in this movie? And so maybe they were more like, definitely the children had a very strong connection because Graham says, Um, i'm sorry morgan when he has to kill the dog Mm -hmm. but uh, maybe it's just that they're on a farm these are working animals they might not have that same cuddly pet kind of relationship and we have to kind of buy into that i do think that's a really
0: fair observation like a farms in particular farmers have a very different relationship with animals than i
1: could absolutely yeah yeah Yeah. that's a fair
0: fair point it just made me like
1: how did you forget your dog oh no no i get i get where that comes from but I, I had a friend who worked on a farm who had working dogs and at one point when he realized one of the working dogs got aggressive with him he didn't even think twice he grabbed a nail gun and the rest is history but like it was like this is what needs to be done yeah yeah it's like this is we're on a farm this dog has just suddenly got aggressive with me there's no love here love lost here it's like you're, you're a working animal you're here to work and now you you threaten my life you're gone so this is the way it is on farms, okay. so I can yeah. kind of, I can kind of buy into it. Yeah, I, I buy it.
0: It's not the choice I would make, uh, but I buy it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So and that's same. that's same. the same. most important thing about it. Okay, same. so then we go to, uh, so aliens are in the house. They're running down to the basement. Get the basement battle. The big epiphany. Don't be afraid. Um, and then we go into the fourth, uh, fourth act. Accident flashback. The morning after, all the tensions release. Everything's fine. Oh, we made it through. We fell asleep in the middle of one of the his- history's biggest catastrophes, and slept for what twelve hours? They were asleep <laughs> eleven hours. Hot, like that's a long time to fall asleep. I've I've been through some pretty uh difficult times, and I you know it's, it's...
1: these guys do seem to be sleepers though because they're like, big I sleepers. <laughs> yeah. You know. They really there are sleepers. Are at really
0: important moments. Yeah.
1: yeah. And, and numerous points in the film, we do see them waking up and it's clearly like almost midday, like several points yeah. in the movie. It's not yeah.
0: when he, when he first gets up the first day, it's 11 o'clock yeah. in the morning. And I'm like, they're farmers. They should have been up for at least five hours. Yeah, absolutely. Anyway, it's, but it's, it's, it's it's, they're the also saying again. like, he's going through depression. He is dealing with depression. He's in the midst yeah, of yeah. that. So, you know, yeah. I'll, I'll give it some of that. It's just the idea of like, he's protecting his family. And then they fall asleep yeah. at, at the what feels like what would normally be a climax mo- climax moment, and mm. that's how you knew that there was something else to it because they yeah, just yeah. fell asleep, and you're like, "There's more to this, right?" Mm. And then we get the morning after the low point, uh, where we pay off the flashback. We see an alien in the house, then the alien beatdown, and then the big mm. climactic moment where he is fully activating his faith. He is, he is reviewed, finally watched in his own mind, accepted the death of his wife. And I do think that scene was chosen well at the time it was because the whole point of this was to him, when we see it, we're seeing the moments where he is allowing himself to remember. And that plays a very important role because before that he wouldn't allow himself to remember. He kept it at a distance. He walled himself off from it Mm -hmm. and now he's allowing himself to remember and that is what gives the, the revelation. And then the moment where he's, you know, the, definitely, you know, uh, swing away is a big part. And and then the big thing is he's learning his own lesson. Just know it's going to pass. This is supposed to happen. It's okay. No matter what comes of this, it's going to be okay. Mm-hmm. And then we have that really great scene where we pull through the broken glass window, which the the opening shot was the beautiful weathered warped window pull through the broken glass window. Then we transition to winter and we see father Hess and then we go to credits. Yeah. Just fantastic way to wrap everything up in a really, you hear the laughing kids in the background. Everything is like, he's integrated. He's adjusted. He's accepted his life and he's returned to his authenticity, which I think is Mm -hmm. really beautiful. Really well done. Okay. So from there, we've got the, we've got the layout of the structure, the four acts, Um, an unconventional structure, but really compelling. And I think the choices that Shyamalan made to structure it the way he did really paid off in the emotional sense. I think it was really smart. If he had revealed the full, like say he showed the whole flashback of the death of the wife at the midpoint when he, uh, you know, when he first showed the flashback or before the midpoint. It wouldn't have, it still would have delivered because the performance and direction was so compelling, but the way he chose and the time he chose to reveal the entire scene, it just really just punched me in the gut.
1: Yeah. I think that that's the, that's a really important thing to, to meditate on when you're learning to write and learning to become a a filmmaker, especially with when it's audio visual storytelling is, is the, is the delivery of information. When, yeah. like, can it, like, Have a look at your story. Maybe if you think all of the beats are absolutely right, but it's not doing something, maybe have a look at the convention of when, you know, when are you delivering specific information and how is that affecting the story? Cause the delivery of every single scene is just delivery of new information. It's mm-hmm. all about delivery of information and how you're doing it. So that's, it is a really, really important. But here's thing the say. trick.
0: And, and this, this is a very important point when it comes to being cinematic is mm-hmm. It's not just a delivery of information. It's wrapping it in emotion. Mm-hmm. Like a oh, lot yeah. of directors make the mistake of saying, well, this is where we learned this. This is where we learned this. And this is how yeah, the information yeah, yeah. is. But Absolutely. cinematic storytelling, I, uh, I call it the cinematic imperative, um, which is going to be, uh, that's part of a, the storyboarding course or the, the film grammar course that I teach.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, the cinematic imperative is the first principle of cinematic storytelling, which is you um, ask the question, what needs to be delivered? And the question is, is how do we feel about it? So every single scene is more, it's more important how we feel about the information than just getting the information across. But you're right. Shyamalan is very good at presenting information in a compelling way.
2: Mm-hmm. Um, all right, let's,
0: let's dive into Graham's character a little bit, his inner conflict and talk a little bit about his arc. Um, so we always look at a uh, character or my paradigm is that I look at character, uh, from several different dimensions And that is uh, conscious desire, unconscious drive, Achilles heel, moral imperative, which gives us the theme, the central theme. Um, And uh, so let's identify this with Graham. What is his conscious desire?
1: Okay. So the parts of of the dramatic structure that I was struggling with the most were the initial parts at the start. So obviously now we know because the dramatic question was, will Graham learn to guide his family? The conscious desire is to guide his family.
0: Totally agree. Will he guide his family through the alien attack? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So his unconscious drive is what motivates him to uh, solve this problem. This is the problem he's choosing to solve, which most of us would just assume, yeah, of course, he's the father. He's going to choose that. There are plenty of fathers that would run out and say, you know what? Sorry, kids. Good luck. I'll see you on the other side. But he's, he's not just choosing to protect his family. He's choosing to guide them through it. He's letting them make decisions for themselves as well, which mm-hmm. plays into his role as, as kind of a shepherd figure. Uh, what is his unconscious drive? Why does he want to solve this problem in this way? What does he want to prove about himself?
1: He wants to prove that he can do it without the existence of God, that he can do it without, the, without, without, without his faith. Yeah, I,
0: yeah. I agree. Uh, he wants to prove that he doesn't need faith in order to guide them which deals with his, his trauma. In fact, I think a lot of this is very much on the surface. A lot of this, you have to kind of usually in order to, to get the unconscious drive and the Achilles heel and the moral imperative, you got to dig a little bit to look at the actual strategies the characters are making. Uh, Mm -hmm. In this case, I think that the, the characters it's, it's directly connected to the plot. They're talking about the themes And, Mm -hmm. you know, the, the conversation about like luck versus uh, do you see a miracle? Do you see signs or do you uh, just get, do you just believe that it's all luck? Um, So what is his Achilles heel? Now the Achilles heel is just that false belief or the flawed belief that is uh, integrated or part of the unconscious drive that's revealed through the unconscious drive. His Achilles
1: heel is that he believes God is responsible for the death of his wife. I think that his, he's hit. We say he lost faith. I don't think he really lost faith. I think he, I I think when he says, I hate you, it's like, he knows God exists and he just, he hates God. So he blames God for the death of his wife. Yeah. And
0: it's, it, it, it's a kind of, the thing I love is that he, that that it's so not only is this a, a movie about faith specifically, but it's a movie about the psychology of faith.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And that's what I think is so great about it is it's, it's not just, uh, you know, religious propaganda. It's also mm-hmm. an exp- that's why I feel like it was it was so compelling. Like, uh, even for me, who, you know, doesn't I'm not an Episcopal Episcopalian believer like the character is, but I was still incredibly moved by his story and by what he went through. And I think what, what his false belief is that I agree with was that he sees uh, faith as a one-sided delusion, and he's angry about that. His loyalty and his faith in God is saying, "Wait, if my faith led me to a point where I have to accept my wife's death as a good thing, I don't want that faith. I reject it." And Which him is saying, why he
1: says. He says to the dog, right? He's talking to Isabel before he goes out into the corn. He says, you're going to feel awfully silly when you realize this is all make-believe. He's talking to himself.
0: Exactly. He's talking to himself. Every single character, every relation, every conversation he has is him expressing his defense mechanisms, trying to reinforce, trying to hold on to that. And that's one cool. thing to keep in mind when we're developing characters with Achilles heel. The, the Achilles heel is the core. The, the Achilles heel is the real core to a character arc and to uh, uh, the emotional subtext. The Achilles heel is that false belief that they are constantly committed to. And it's only through the external conflict that they're forced to reckon with the Achilles heel, see it for what it is, and then uh, either embrace it or overcome it. And in this case, he, he overcomes it. Um, and so as a force of the external conflict, that's what the moral imperative is. The moral imperative, uh, another metaphor, because I, I, keep getting questions on moral imperative. So I'm going to keep hammering on like, hopefully conveying uh, the importance of it in story. Mm-hmm. But one metaphor of the moral imperative is uh, that I came up with was uh, a, like a bouncer at a club. Um, you want to go into that club. Like your, your conscious desire uh, is what drives you to pursue an objective of desire. And your objective desire is inside that club. You want to go for whatever reason, uh, what you want is inside the club. And the bouncer comes out and says, all right, let me see your ID. Do you have the identity and the values that it takes to survive in this venue? Mm-hmm. And if you don't, you're going to be rejected. You don't, you're not allowed to achieve your objective desire. And uh, so the, the bouncer will look at your unconscious drive, see your Achilles heel and say, sorry, you don't have what it takes. Get out of here. And conflict is designed to... The conflict that the character faces, the way they solve the problems, is designed to help them um, address their Achilles heel and go through a value shift. The moral imperative is the source of that conflict. So in Signs, what is the moral imperative that uh, Graham is reckoning with?
1: I struggle to conceive of it in, in any other way other than through my own Kind of my own worldview. So but as a, as a result of it being kind of a faith based uh, mm-hmm. theme, I'm thinking that he has to he has to trust in God. It would be the more prayer for me. You're not going to survive this situation if you don't trust that everything happened happened for a reason. Okay, so because it's a it's a faith based theme, I think that he has to learn that he has to put his trust in God in order to achieve what he needs to achieve. So it's to do. It comes down to uh, believing that everything has happened for a reason.
0: Good. I I agree with you. I do think that this is structured, like even me not being a person of, you know, faith in God, but, um, it it is about faith and, you know, and the thing I like is that it talks about faith in general. Also, It, it addresses like faith in life and faith in purpose, um, which is the larger metaphor. Um, I agree in order to, and the thing about the moral imperative, I think that I was making the mistake of before was I was conveying it in general terms, which was causing people to confuse the theme with moral imperative. The moral imperative is specific to this story and the moral imperative is uh, expressed through the moral sphere. And the moral sphere is just the arena of conflict that the character is engaging. These are the rules of the universe of this world. How do you survive in this world? And in this world and signs to survive the alien attack, he must accept his wife's death mm-hmm. as part of a plan. So that's the core. If he's going to survive the alien attack and guide his children and guide his family properly, he must accept his wife's death as purposeful.
2: Mm-hmm. And
0: that's what's, that's what's keeping him from his faith. So the, yeah. so the, I would articulate the theme of that is This is how we generalize it from the specific of a surviving the alien attack to the general, which is theme. The only way, uh, only through facing heartbreak can faith offer wisdom. Because before that, his faith was offering nothing but pain. And so he rejected his faith because it was too painful to accept it. He refused the insult of saying that your wife needed to die for whatever reason. And because of that, he wasn't able to find the wisdom that he needed to guide his family until he could look at, literally look at his wife's death in the face and accept it as a purposeful part of his life and give it meaning, which I think is a really, really beautiful theme. And it's beautifully articulated. It's devastating and heartbreaking. That's why I think Shyamalan took a an alien invasion movie and made it a deeply sentimental, beautiful story about faith purpose and living a meaningful life. Um, What are your thoughts on that?
1: I struggle with heartbreak as being part of the theme for the fact that like um, it's his particular issue that his heartbreak is preventing him from re-engaging with his faith. But as a, as a universal truism, only through facing heartbreak can faith offer wisdom isn't true on the face of it, right? Like I don't need to have my heart broken for faith to offer me wisdom in in reality. And so in this, the situation that we glean from, from, from Graham's experience, it's not necessarily the heartbreak, it's more through, um, acceptance of, of purpose, only through only through accepting that, uh, that um only through accepting that everything has a purpose can faith offer wisdom or maybe that's not the best way of articulating it either, but I feel like including heartbreak in it doesn't make can I, can it make it, a, makes, it, makes it, untrue. it makes it untrue because let n- me
0: let me make a point uh, about uh themes in general so mm-hmm. I believe that this is the th- the theme that this movie is articulating, whether you, like lots of movies articulate themes that I don't agree with. Mm-hmm. Um, and you could even argue that it's, you know, manipulative or, um, anyway, lots, lots of themes are, you know, like, uh, the Godfather, never mm-hmm. go against family. Always make mm-hmm. sure that you're putting your family first, even over the law. Now, in my world and the moral spheres that I navigate, no, you, you don't break the law to protect family. Um, Mm -hmm. especially if they're a criminal organization. Um, but in this world and in this, in the narrative, in this moral sphere that he's navigating, um, I think the heartbreak is directly connected is this is what, uh, Shyamalan is saying is that this character, because he refuses to accept that the most, the deepest heartbreak, which is the loss of his wife, is directly connected to God's purpose for him, what he interprets as God's purpose. He, he refuses to accept that it's God's purpose so much to the point that he's willing to abandon his entire universal paradigm, his entire universal worldview, because he doesn't believe that God could be that cruel. And it's because of that, he cuts himself off from the, the idea of faith Because he refuses to accept that heartbreak is a fundamental element to God's plan for him. So, as soon as he.
1: Okay. Okay. Once he goes
0: through the process of saying, oh, it is about heartbreak, and this is deeply personal, I, once he integrates, that's why this is about the process of acceptance. Once he accepts that it's the heartbreak is part of the plan, then. W- then he can. Then faith is allowed to offer wisdom. I
1: I, I get what you're saying now. Uh, so the pro- I have the I have a problem with the grammar. I don't have a problem with the idea. <laughs> oh, okay, interesting. I, I, because Bring I that think that. Because when you say only through facing heartbreak, it means that faith can offer no wisdom whatsoever unless heartbreak is a part of it. That's the way that the, the sentence is structured in, the, in, oh, okay. in, in such a way that grammatically it means that only when you experience heartbreak can faith offer wisdom, which is not true. I would I, like it's not just that I don't think that it's true, and of course themes can. I can disagree with themes, and they can still be part of the story. But I just think on the face of it, it obviously it, I don't think that it would it, it 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 holds any water to say that you can only wisdom through faith if you have if you've had some sort of heartbreak so I would say that I would restructure and say that only basically you need to structure it in such a way as to say that to when you experience heartbreak you still need to face even in the face of heartbreak you must accept that in order to get faith, get, get wisdom from faith. It's not I, like I'm, I'm, I'm not even doing a really great job at, at structuring that, but it's just, it is, we've got to find the appropriate grammar of it because so, it's what? not, it's not that heart, that, that heartbreak is a prerequisite. It's that whenever you experience heartbreak, if you don't face the heartbreak, if in that situation, if you don't face the heartbreak, you will not glean wisdom through faith.
0: That's really well said. Yeah. That's a really good point. I think that's a good criticism. Um, I, I do want to, I, I, I want to say another thing about theme as well is um, the whole point of the relationship between the Achilles heel, the moral imperative and the theme is that it represents a kind of phase that a character is going through. So for example, in ET, the whole point of ET, the subtext of ET and the theme is that um, it's okay to love somebody and let them go.
1: Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah.
0: Now, the thing of it is, is if you believe that loving someone is always letting them go from that point on, then you're going to have to, you're going to sabotage a lot of healthy relationships. So like if ET were to have a, a sequel, then Elliot's, new Achilles heel would be, well, I believe that all love means letting go. So that's Elliot's phase at that point. So the next to so the sequel would be, he learns, uh, he has a new Achilles heel and it reckons with that new unconscious drive. And that's, that's one thing that a lot of sequels get wrong is they, they come up with a really compelling unconscious drive and Achilles heel and then put them through a moral imperative that causes them to reckon with the Achilles heel. And then the sequel, they do the exact same Achilles heel. Mm-hmm. And then you start saying, wait, I thought they already learned that lesson. Mm-hmm. And I thought they already kind of went through that. And then they're still trying to invoke the same themes, which ends up creating these vapid characters that don't, don't resonate anymore. It's a big reason why very few sequels have that emotional impact that the original film has is because they're, they're failing to have that kind of uh, depth and the relationship with the characters of their growth. Um, in the case of this, I think this is the lesson that Graham needed to learn. He hadn't quite integrated that the heartbreak is, a, is one aspect of accepting God's plan or accepting that it all has purpose, that there is no coincidence. He wanted so badly for it to be wrong because then he can reject, he, he feels justified in his anger at God. And then, so he has to go through that anger phase.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, so, which is where his arc comes to. Like that's why that's why I would make the case that his epiphany is directly connected to that. The moment he starts articulating the lesson to his son that he needs for himself, he is st- his strategy changes. And that's why I don't think that that's the like the epiphany and the low point are, are separate there like last last week we had a discussion about the epiphany and the low point being separate here's a good example of it the reason is is because his strategy changes he has a value change before that before the epiphany he couldn't bring himself to remember his wife's death he kept so cutting think, himself off
1: based on what we said last week and based on 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 this episode also mm-hmm. you're you're are you suggesting that it is always the case that the epiphany yeah. comes before the low point or that's nope.
0: Okay. Okay. I don't believe in any always for any of it. You know, you can okay, put the sure. climax as the hook if you can figure <laughs> out a way to do it. I don't know how you would do it, but if you if you do, then congratulations, you completely subverted uh Arrival sort of kinda did. Pressure.
1: Arrival kinda did.
0: <laughs> I don't know if we want to wake that beast again. But um, <laughs> Uh, but no, in this case, the thing to look at is what is a strategy? His strategy has changed because of that epiphany where he allowed himself to articulate his fear. It's not that he lost his faith, like you said. It's that he was so angry that God chose that his plan was to, for him to lose his wife. He was so heartbroken mm-hmm. that God would do that to him that he said, no, I'm cutting you off. I am, you know what? You took the one thing that was more sacred to me than anything. So I am in actively saying, I hate you. And it's not until he verbally acknowledged his anger for God. He's saying like, no, it's not that I stopped believing in you. It's that I refuse to believe in you, which is interesting. You know, as an, as an atheist, I went through a totally different experience, Mm -hmm. a a completely different, uh, a completely different process. It wasn't a, you know, I, I, I'm just unpersuaded by any of the claims of God. There's not a, I believe in it, but I'm refused to accept it kind of thing, which is, you know, mm-hmm. it's, it's a different value system altogether. Um, but I think this is beautifully articulated because of that. His faith is, uh, he, he, once he articulated understand that this is going to pass, That's when he changed his, his, um, his strategy. And then we jump to the next morning and the next morning he is behaving as a different person. He's now ready to face his wife's death. And by facing his wife's death, he's able to give the guidance that they all need in order to overcome this. Like very specifically, there's a question of like, well, why didn't we have Graham be the guy who's swinging away? And the mm-hmm. point of it is is he's not there to be the guy who swings the bat, to, yeah. who's there to kill the aliens. He is there to give the guidance to help other people slay the demons they need to slay. Absolutely. And that's really his role as the father.
1: I love the fact that you just brought up demons because we're totally going to get into that as well. Yes, yes, we are. <laughs> well, let's, let's do that.
0: Let's, uh, let's talk about uh, what, is, what is science really about? Hold on a second. <laughs> Okay. Yeah. So let, let's talk a little bit about what is science we, we talked briefly about, like, um, the stages of grief, which I think the structure of the movie really beautifully articulates this, the stages of grief, now, the, the traditional stages of grief, are um, shock and denial, then anger, then depression, then you go through like dialogue and bargaining until you finally get to acceptance. That doesn't work with a dramatic structure. Um, dialogue and bargaining that late in the story and then acceptance, it's kind of anticlimactic. So, um, but th- the truth of it is, is stages of grief are not, you know, we don't all go through the same linear. stages. Yeah, it's not exactly. It's not linear. Um, it's, you're jumping all over the place and that's what I think this movie does really well is it shows him dealing with the different stages of grief. Mm -hmm. Um, and that's why I think the act structures work so well. The denial of the grief is connected to his denial of the aliens, that this is some mythical scale experience, very similar to, you know, like his, his religious experience. He's trying to say, this is not a religious experience. It's not aliens. There's a perfectly logical explanation for it. It's all just luck. It's all just chance. It's not aliens. It's not God. It's not angels. It's not demons. Um, which I think is, you know, pretty much on the surface. I think that's very clear and really well executed. It's my favorite thing about it. Um, mm-hmm. But then, then the next thing that comes to me is, is, you know, this is very much invoking the thing that really resonates is this idea of uh, the Exodus and specifically really? the destroying angel uh, passing through Egypt, killing the firstborn child. And, you know, there was this thing in, uh, the story in the Exodus and, um, which is celebrated during Passover, uh, for the, the Jewish religion, which they're celebrating the liberation of the Jews from slavery to the Pharaoh. And there is these plagues that came, uh, uh, came through Egypt and those that had faith and followed the, their prophet were able to not suffer from the plagues. And it was, it was plagues upon the Pharaoh, to convince him to liberate the Jews and Passover uh, every year remembers them and and, uh, reorients this uh, incredibly spiritual tradition of reminding people or uh, reminding those of the covenant um, that uh, God is liberating them. And this, this movie articulates this feeling, this sense of this destroying angel at the door that's coming in and trying to take your children away from you. And the thing that's so great about that is, you know, like those that, you know, according to the, the, um, the, the original tradition of the Exodus was the, they were told to put blood on the threshold of their door. Mm -hmm. And if they did that of, they sacrificed their, their lamb and put the the blood of the sacrificed lamb on the door, then the destroying angel would pass their house and their children would be safe. Mm
2: -hmm.
0: Imagine the anxiety of going through that and you don't have the blood on your threshold which this movie articulates that really incredible mind state of this apocalyptic world ending cataclysm and you're Mm -hmm. defenseless against it. And that's, you know, that's what it feels like to be dealing with these cataclysmic sublime moments, you know, moments of sublimity with Mm -hmm. no defenses against it. And I think this movie really taps into that kind of like uh disturbing archetype, which is interesting because it's, it, it plays with the idea of demons, but also angels of death uh, descended down upon the uh, land uh, to teach lessons. Um, What were you you talking about?
1: No, we're just on what you were saying first. um, It's obviously, it's amazing that they don't, there is no, again, it's also, it's all metaphorical rather than, uh, than on, on the surface that like he doesn't have to go out and, the the, the sacrifice that was made is just one that he has to accept that was that was done already so the Mm -hmm. sacrificial lamb is the the wife but he's rejecting it so therefore the blood is not on the lintel whereas it's in the moment where he accepts the sacrifice of the wife was required in order for the family to be uh to to receive salvation that's essentially metaphorically when the moment when the blood is pasted over the door right that's the moment. the wife's been sacrificed that's the moment that the blood gets put over the door. No, no more, no more worry about. So as as you said, it's not like we don't have to. So it means that Meryl um, then becomes, you know, he's the stand-in for, uh, for the the savior that you know, that, that and that ends up actually doing the work of of killing the uh, the demons that are there, but. It's, the, it, it's like you said, uh, Graham doesn't have to do anything. The work is being done for him through faith, right? Mm-hmm. And that's the same thing with all of the Jews. They didn't have to actually do it. They didn't have to go out and, and fight Pharaoh, right? What they had to do was, the through faith, accept what was being said to them. The sacrifice is just kill the lamb, put the blood on the lintel. And Graham's mm-hmm. sacrifice is, okay, your wife has been slain. Her blood has been spilled through faith in that sacrifice, you will be brought to salvation. And so that is, it's her, it's, it's her blood over the, over the and, it's, and it's, it's beautiful as well that it's the, because Morgan says, I'm not going to, to go, go down to the body of water because this is where we lived with mom. Sorry, that's you're kind of blowing
0: it. my mind. I didn't make that connection. That's that's beautiful. <laughs> I didn't make the connection between the wife's death as a sacrifice. Being
1: a sacrifice love, right. And, and what's amazing as well is that like it's the, the, with the metaphor of the of the the blood on on their house, uh, Graham wants them to go down by a lake, right? He wants them to leave and go to a different house. And it's Morgan that says, "No, this is where we lived with mom. Mm. This is where mom's blood is going to be is going to save us." Wow, right? Which is that's an, it's a, it's an incredible. illustration. That's beautiful. That it
0: it, and then it it takes what is. Just a brutal, meaningless—not meaningless, but a brutal death—that seems completely unfair and gives it purpose, gives it mm-hmm. meaning and context.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, it's also kind of fucked up too. <laughs> like it's, like, <laughs> yeah, you needed to. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm very sympathetic to Graham. Like uh, that's.
1: But I I think that's, I love when they take something that's, I I love when they, when the, the, these stories where the, the sacrifice is brutal, I think does resonate an awful lot more. I listen to an awful lot of philosophers and, 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 um, and psychoanalysts online that talk about the necessity for us to experience genuine trauma in life. And the fact that these days, because we're so comfortable, we shy away from it. And we consider, so many things to be way more traumatic than they actually are. Now, of course, the tra- that you're losing your wife, absolutely, you know, it's an awful thing for him to have gone through. But it is the idea of sometimes you do have to rise out of those situations in order to grow into the more actualized version of yourself, no matter how difficult the struggle is. Mm-hmm. You know, we, we do have to uh, grapple with the fact that in order for us to even survive in this world, Every day is a negotiation. Every time that we go, we go out into the world, we're risking pain, we're risking hurt. But if we don't do it, you know, that's why we, you need conservatism and you need progressivism. If you, if you conserve only, you don't go out and get anything, right? So, And if you don't conserve, then you're going to end up wandering out into the wilderness and hurting yourself and, and not knowing what's what. The progressive aspect of growth and stability... Uh, it it requires that you put yourself in dangers where things where you're going to experience some really, really awful traumas in life. But that's how, that is how you survive. It's how the community survives. And of course, in this case, yes, he's losing his wife and a a woman, presumably innocent virtuous woman lost her life. But what's the end game? What's the result? The family go on, the family live on, the family survive. Mm. And if that, and through the logic of the story, if that didn't happen, if she didn't die, they would have all been killed. Right. So it is yeah. morbid. Yeah. It's morbid, but it's, well, it's, maybe. It's, to, it's, I don't know if we code. can,
0: I don't know if we can quite go that far, but I do think it, it is a good way of giving meaning to her death. Yeah. But I had yeah. made that connection. That's, that's a really interesting connection. Um, yeah, really good point. That kind of, that kind of blew my mind. I didn't make those connections at all. That was a good into <laughs> But well, um, did you
1: hear that the theories about the about the demons as well though literally like that the aliens are not aliens that the whole story is a front for something that's kind of going on that like the aliens are a a projection of people who are humanly based uh, temporally based can't really grapple with the supernatural and so we we perceive them as aliens, but this, the movie is actually a story about demons. Have you heard that theory?
0: N- not when it pertains to signs, but like, are you a like um, Twin Peaks fan at all?
1: I haven't seen it, never saw Twin Peaks. Oh. I think it was, was it before my time? I'm not, I'm not sure. Or maybe it just was an Amer- more of an American. Well, you're thing living now, it
0: so it's not before your time. Anything before now is all accessible. <laughs> so Twin Peaks. I've never seen them. yeah mark snyder wrote this book uh about uh that was kind of the secrets of twin peaks that connects the the whole story that's going on beneath Mm -hmm. from the perspective of different like diaries and records and things like that and it it goes into this idea i don't want to spoil too much but it, it goes really deep and it ties into this idea of of aliens and demons and Releasing some demon and stuff. Um, I mm-hmm. I hadn't heard it as it relates to signs. I think on the metaphorical level, absolutely. It's it's demons trying to invade your house and steal your family away, and mm-hmm. in particular poisoning your firstborn firstborn child. Mm-hmm. Like that's that's no coincidence. I think sh- that is Shyamalan actively like you have you know the, the Last Supper, which is more of a Seder. You know they're yeah, they're yeah. sitting there having their last meal, preparing for the Passover. Ho- yeah. you know, hoping for the Passover.
1: Well, okay. Co- consider the fact part. that we ne- we never actually see the spaceships ever, right? Yeah. The 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 aliens they look kind of demonic. They don't. It's, it doesn't look like you're necessarily. It kind of has the old school green alien sort of vibe to it, but they also yeah. it, it also looks a little bit more like creature feature sort of situation yep. going on, right? You never see the spaceships. You just see lights in the sky and 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 so and then during the day they're invisible and think about how primitive it is that these aliens they came to earth which is a planet that is predominantly covered in water 70 percent water there's water in our air you know the vapor like it's just it's so improbable that they would come here and try and harvest this planet when water is their kryptonite right but the fact that you're then so so think think of these two things one the the thing that ends up getting them killed is the water that's littered all around a reverence house, so it's holy mm. water, right? It's not just water; right, it's think, holy yeah. water. Yeah, that's fun. So, so that's one aspect, and then the other aspect is when when we do have that moment where they fall asleep during what may have been the climax until we realize it's not, um, and they're asleep for that th- those twelve hours. What do we hear on the radio when we when we wake up the next morning? So Meryl has turned the radio on and says it's over; they're leaving, and the person announcing on the radio says that. We, we he doesn't even say exactly how we did it if it was just water why didn't he say yeah it turns out guys they're 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 susceptible to water so just throw water on them he doesn't say that he says we've start we've discovered primitive means of taking care of the aliens or whatever way whatever the actual uh, I'm, not, I'm not saying i'm saying verbatim um and so when you think of primitive means he doesn't say water right so what are the primitive means when, you, when we think back to the tools that were used to fight demons in the past, you're talking about things like garlic, silver, crosses, <laughs> holy water, right? Okay, yeah. So it's like, yeah. so these are the things that they're using to fight the aliens instead of guns, bombs, you know? So it's yeah. like, it, it it makes way more sense for the narrative that we're actually fighting demons than we're fighting aliens.
0: I like that. So it's not just that it was metaphorically demons, like the way I'm saying that, you know, this is like a metaphor of like, you know, or destroying angel type, but they're Mm -hmm. like in the narrative of the story that they're demons posing as aliens.
1: And people are so incapable of believing in the divine and the supernatural that they all said it was aliens Mm -hmm. instead of addressing it for what it really was.
0: That's fascinating. I, I like it. The thing I really like about that is it, it invokes something else I thought we might talk about is, is Jungian archetypes. Nice. And, you know, I like young. Jung, yeah. I, I, I think Carl Jung is, uh, if nothing else, he's really, really informative for understanding metaphor and allegory as it relates mm-hmm. to the psyche. Mm-hmm. And, right. um, and the demon is one of the archetypes and another one of the archetypes this movie is invoking uh, is the archetype of apocalypse and, you know, mm-hmm. the, uh, apocalypse, most people associate with like end of the world scenario. And the apocalyptic mm-hmm. mindset is, you know, it, it comes from this mindset of like uh, great revelation. Like apocalypse literally means to reveal or to uh, uncover that which was hidden. Um, that's yes. like the Greek roots of it. And yeah, um, that's
1: why it's revelation in the Bible. The, the book of apocalypse in the past in the Bible isn't the book of revelation now because it means yeah. the same
0: it doesn't mean the end of the world. It it means no. revelation. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, uh, but the, the, the archetype is a kind of end of the world sensibility. It's a feeling that civilization uh, is about to collapse because we're giving way to a new way to see the world. Our relationship with the universe around us is about to change. Mm-hmm. And, and Jung is specifically saying that like, he noticed that specifically in, in um, schizophrenics that we're seeing that there is this end of the world. And, and what it's reckoning with is that, you know, the end times are always here and they always have been, but they're always here because the present is the end of time. As far as, you know, fourth dimensional creatures that we are like the Mm -hmm. present is the end of time because we've only reached this point, which is Mm -hmm. the present. Mm -hmm. The past is everything behind us. So because of that, this feeling that the world is constantly going to, it's about to change or it is going through a massive change is always present. Mm -hmm. But what's significant about the Jungian archetype of the, of the apocalypse is that the revelation is the product of a dramatic cultural shift. And you know, Mm -hmm. that's, it's, and this is what this movie invokes is this feeling of, it's not just the personal feeling that your life is changing. It's the collective consciousness that everyone's life is about to change because of what's being revealed.
2: Mm-hmm. And, it, mm-hmm. and it
0: becomes a kind of rite of passage. It becomes a, a crossing of the threshold. Um, and
1: it's sort of, and it's regressive, not negatively regressive, but sort of positively regressive as well in the sense that they're saying we're going back to primitive ways of thinking about things. Maybe we've come too far in, in the, after the Enlightenment age. Where we've, cons- where we've, you know, we've, maybe we've gone a little bit too into the weeds. Where this new understanding of the way Man, the world works. I got a question for
0: you. You, you uh, did the uh, quote bunnies, when you said <laughs> enlightenment. <laughs> what did you mean by that?
1: Uh, it's just, well, I mean that's a huge conversation, but I just don't necessarily believe okay. that the enlightenment was was uh, as progressive and helpful as maybe history deems it to have been but that's a totally, that's a, that's a a a huge. Okay. We'll save that for another,
0: maybe we'll save that for a completely different series. (laughs) that's that's huge Um, um, So yeah, we, we touched on a a few of those things. I don't know if we want to get too much into the historical context. This, this movie was one of the first movies uh, after nine 11 that went into production. Oh, wow. um, Yeah. and, And that heavily influenced a lot of the structure of the film, the performances, it's part of the reason why it was filmed the way it was. Um, and uh, Shyamalan talks specifically about how uh, it was an important part of people going through this incredible trauma and trying to make sense of it. And it, it informed, you know, definitely uh, the writing of it, but also the, especially the execution and the performance, the sense of isolation, the sense of dealing with a world changing and looking at trauma and stuff. Um, I don't want to get too deep into the, the the historical context of 9-11, but I do think that that plays heavily into why this story was told and the significance of the story being told when it was, and also the reception. You know, this is a movie about faith mm-hmm. uh, in a time where, there especially was in America, there's this this strong tribal response to say, we need to we need to get through this dark night together and mm-hmm. do it in a, in a moral way, which, in, you know, which we now know in a lot of ways, like uh, a lot of what America did was incredibly toxic as well. And when I say mm-hmm. America, I'm, I'm talking about uh, political decisions. Politically, I'm not no, about, no. Uh, The Absolutely. people of America. Yeah. Absolutely. I think it's important yeah, to course. make that distinction.
1: No, for sure. It is, of course, no, hundred yeah. percent. But I also think that it, it, it makes me, um, uh, proud is not the right word. It makes me um inspired, I guess, by this movie an awful lot more. That they, that he, like, it's so optimistic, right? There's, there's, some, yeah. there's some very negative stuff in there, but it's yeah. a very optimistic film. And there were so many films after nine eleven that, that went the other way, um, and and I think now, after COVID, we're starting to go the other direction for some reason. So between nine eleven and COVID, which were like the two kind of earth shaking things that have happened in the twenty first century, right, um. So after nine eleven, I think a lot of the films got very very dark, and so even you look at you look at uh, you know the, the way some of the even the the way that what things we've chosen to do with the superhero genre and stuff like that as well, where we're, where we're, everything had to be gritty, right? Like that, that that's kind of was a re, almost a result. It's it was like a that was the aftermath of a nine eleven a post nine eleven world. Whereas COVID sort of ha- it has done something else. Where I think post COVID people are looking for, and and I even hear this, I don't know, like you've got your ear to the ground more than I do, but what I'm hearing most of the time when people are presenting scripts of a of a dour nature since nine eleven sorry, since COVID, um, most of them are being turned away, and the, the script writers are being told, no, we want we need happy stuff now. People are coming out of COVID, having been miserable, been in lockdowns for a long period of time. People are have developed certain issues. We need some optimistic, upbeat, pleasurable uh, features. Um, so the fact that post nine eleven, they, he's gone with an, with an optimistic, I'm like maybe, maybe he wrote it before nine eleven, so he was going to make it anyway, but it, it's a, it, it's a very optimistic film considering what would what would come later. Yeah.
0: Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Um, I'm almost reluctant to to comment too much on like the, you know, the, the environment or the ethos that we're dealing with now, just because I, you know, it's really difficult to, to comment on the present because yeah. we don't fully understand. We have so mm. much context that we need to do with. Sure. Um, yeah. But yeah, so I, I, man, that was a really great discussion. You, you opened my eyes to a bunch of, a bunch of things that I hadn't thought about because, you know, I was really trying to break into like, what is this story about? I do think, well, we we can talk a little bit about, you know, plot holes and maybe some story weaknesses. Sure. Unfortunately, I, I think, I think this movie has been raked over the coals when people are saying, you know, the, the, the glass of water and, mm-hmm. and like the, um, just the sentimentality, uh, and the vulnerability, but the truth of it is, is like revisiting it now, like fully aware of all the plot holes. I don't care. Like
2: yeah. f-
0: coming at it from a, a kind of dream sequence, a dream approach. Which is all right. Let's suspend the rules of the universe and just explore what it feels like to go through this faith crisis. I think it articulates it in a really beautiful way.
2: Mm-hmm. And
0: like, I don't even, you know, theoretically, I don't, I don't, you know, I'm, you know, I'm not a Christian. I'm not a, mm-hmm. a believer in God. But I still feel like this articulated that beautiful experience of of faith. Like I still believe, mm-hmm. I st- you know, faith for me is an uh, incredibly vital part of being human. And mm-hmm. faith is like something that I try and nurture in myself, especially like um, faith in uh, that, that life has meaning and purpose and that, you know, we need to work for, uh, for, you know, moral purposes, which sounds really broad in general. But I think faith is an incredibly vital part of living a healthy, happy, meaningful life. And I, I believe personally, joy and happiness comes from having a core of meaning and every step you take working toward that meaning is where your happiness and joy comes from. And that's impossible without faith. And that's mm-hmm. why I think like even without the the, um, the metaphor or a belief in a, a God figure, I still think faith plays an important role in a healthy psychological uh, mind state.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, any other thoughts or uh, things you want to bring up with uh, with signs? It's a really great
1: uh, choice. No, I I think that um, a, 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 what you've brought up there with respect to you know people's perception of it, based on the fact that it's kind of it, it seems as though it's propaganda for for faith or whatever. I don't mm-hmm. even I'm not sure, mm-hmm. but I, I I don't I don't I don't know Shyamalan's beliefs, so and, and I don't need to like it, mm-hmm. it, 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 one way or the other. I don't feel like it's pushing faith. He's just telling a, a particular story about this person who lost his faith and got it back, and I, I think the fact that what do we say it was sixty-seven percent critic score versus the higher, um, the so it's sixty-seven percent audience score. Sorry, and seventy-eight percent critic score i think potentially you'd, you'd have a higher audience score except you probably will have some people who were a little bit like "Ugh, i don't like the way that's pushing faith down my throat um because it, i mean it's such it's such an awesome film i think 67 percent is a little bit of an injustice i know it's still it's still a positive score but um yeah i do think that that you know that, that'll hurt it a little bit um i did have people say to me at the time when i watched it as well that they didn't like it because it's pushing faith too much and i'm like that's, I don't think that's the lens to watch it through. Do you know what I mean? Like it's, it, it just, you know what, just, this it, kind of, of character study.
0: Yes. Yeah, sorry to cut you off there. Um, no, no, it's okay. I, I do like, I think this actually ties into something we were talking about last week about uh, propaganda and art. Sure. And you know, a lot of people are saying, well, this is, you know, it's just religious propaganda. And that, that line I was drawing, I, I feel like I wanted to articulate that a little bit better about like, um, not all art is prop. I don't believe all art is propaganda. I think mm-hmm. propaganda. Um, I actually talk about this in the video of um, or the essay I did about, um, and in the book, uh, the story by numbers, uh, beyond the hero's journey.
1: I love that so and,
0: much. <laughs> thanks, man. <laughs> so and, uh, much,
1: guys. You gotta honestly, you gotta watch that. It's so good. <laughs> <laughs> uh,
0: so th- the hero's journey. Basically, my claim about the hero's journey is that it's a rite of passage that indoctrinates. And an, a hero represents an ideal that the the art is saying, "Look at this ideal, you should adopt this ideal into you like th- that's that's the subtext of it is that it represents an ideal and holds it up and then there's art, the more mosaic, what I call the more mosaic, which is it it explores different ideals and different values and brings them into conflict with each other and one of them, the heroes builds up sacred values mm-hmm. and then the other one the more mosaic challenges those sacred values and forces us to question their role in our our internal map of values and i believe we need both stories people like uh, a lot of talk discussion about dune we're going to talk about this in the next one is that uh dune is a great deconstruction of a hero And it's true because it builds up the hero and then deconstructs it. And a lot of people say, well, only the great art is the art that deconstructs heroes. And I don't agree with that. I I think we need stories that build up values and we also need, it's kind of the Rousseauian idea of checks and balances. We also need the stories that challenge the concept of what we think is a hero that way. That's the, that's the um, dynamic, cultural conversation what do we value like a, make a strong belief claim and explore that belief claim and embrace that value and then challenge it have the strength and will to challenge it and to sculpt it according to what the needs are and i think that is
1: that's the life cycle of genres as well though isn't it where where mm-hmm. you ha- and subgenres, because you essentially have the archetype initially and you've got several years of us experiencing films of that with, with that particular archetype then you get the deconstruction then you get parody then you get the death of the genre and then at some point in the, in the future if, if it has legs it will come back again in it's you know in a new form or whatever but it's that's like that, sort of that that's the life cycle of uh yeah. typically it's genre right like so for the western for example you you, you had the archetypical western then you had the deconstruction of the western which clint eastwood in fact i think he speared. Uh, um what's the, what's the expression is a spear is that the yeah. headed? spearheaded thank you so he spearheaded the um the deconstruction era of the western as far as i'm unless i'm completely off and then you went it went into parody so you have lots of, of parody westerns that took place then be- before the end of the 20th century and the uh, 21st century and, and, and into the beginning of the 21st century and then the the Oh, they, you, you also had the neo-Western, which was like, uh, so, you know, there's, the, the, but anyway, it, it is, there is a kind of a, a life cycle, right? Where it's not oh. just like this, th- these two things exist in the same period of time. A lot of the time you get the archetype for a certain period and then you get the deconstruction separately of, of, uh, you know, within, within one, one particular genre.
2: Yeah.
0: Have you ever heard of, uh, I think it's Graham Norton's, uh, Clock of Allegories? No. Okay. I should, we should definitely save this for another, either podcast or essay, but basically the clock of allegories is this theory of, of how um, allegories are matriculated through culture. And okay. it's it, it, basically an allegory, take any allegory, uh, the, the tortoise and the hare, and mm-hmm. it, it clocks it as a kind of cycle, a life cycle of an allegory. Um, as it matures, the allegory doesn't change, but the way the culture interprets the allegory changes uh, okay. as we go mm-hmm. around it. And it, it starts with the, the ideal, then the symbolic, then the metonymic, and ultimately to the ironic. And then as it goes through that ironic phase, it's deconstructed and then returns to the ideal or the, um, the naive allegory. And, um, and so do
1: you think that, for example, we were talking with, with Blade Runner 2049 about the uh, uh, Pinocchio and Peter and the Wolf you think those allegories would be interpreted differently over over time? Ye- yes. Well, okay.
0: Yes, absolutely. Well, I think are in they, that case, I think being, they'll move. Go
1: ahead. Uh, so, so you don't think that they're going to be associated with the period of time that they were created in because they're directly. Oh no, no, no.
0: I I think, you know, right now we have one association. A hundred years from now, they're gonna have a different association, depending on whatever conflicts and whatever Like, you know, each person goes through their own kind of clock of allegories and then culture and as a whole, like the fact that like signs is being regarded with uh, contempt by a lot of critics Mm -hmm. or, you know, just people in general see it as uh, overly sentimental and too vulnerable and maybe even cringy. And I'm sympathetic Mm -hmm. to that. The only thing is I I do think that he's still using, which is what I celebrate, like cinematic craftsmanship that, Mm -hmm. that is genuinely sophisticated in a way that gets me to engage in a story that's compelling, whether I agree with it or not. And Mm -hmm. I think, you know, a, a sophisticated audience, the audience that I, that I'm interested in engaging is, is able to engage movies and watch movies that they don't agree with and still empathetically engage the character and the themes Without, yeah, it goes back to the definition of skepticism. Skepticism isn't a outright rejection. Skepticism simply says, "I will play with the idea without accepting it as true or false. I will mm-hmm. simply engage the idea." And I think skepticism is, you know, an indication of your maturity. Like I, I don't, I think uh, adulthood, uh, any adult skepticism is is the ideal kind of uh, mind state where you can play mm-hmm. with ideas without having to accept it as true or false and what mm-hmm. we're having right now in our culture is a lot of pressure tribal pressure to force people to accept either something as true or something is absolutely false when mm-hmm. the most sophisticated answer you could give to any of those is i don't know I and think the truth is probably in the balance yeah, it's the celebration of I don't know is is uh, is a very – to me, it's a mark of high sophistication or mm-hmm. a, just – it, it's a responsible position to take when it comes to any new information because that's, that's – that The, the was only
1: thing about. I know for sure is that I know nothing. Socrates, yeah.
0: yeah. Socrates? Yeah. Um, yeah, and then I think that applies. I think that's mm-hmm. – uh, the Socratic method I think is uh, an important – yeah, it's, it's that important position of saying, I'm not going to present the answer. I'm just going to ask questions until I understand more.
1: You yeah. Know? Yeah. Well, it's like you were and saying at the beginning kind of the beginning. We against action. When you were talking about the, when we were talking about the, the uh, Stephen Segal syndrome and you were you know, and, and we, right at the, at the top of the show, like the fact that you... Um, oh, I've lost my train of thought. So Steven Seagal,
0: really quick, I think with the Steven Seagal syndrome, like be Steven Seagal, throw yourself mm -hmm. into the battle and go for it. You know, like that's why I think Mm -hmm. there are too many people that are like, isn't that embarrassing? Sure, it's embarrassing, Mm -hmm. but he's putting himself out there. He's going for it. You're over there in your corner and you're like comfortable little, you know, armchair just saying like, I'm just going to comment on stuff, but I'm not going to produce anything. Go produce something you know, go make some art and yeah. engage it and then fail and learn from it and become a better artist. Yeah.
1: But you could, so you were saying like the, 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 polarity was basically having so like kind of being somewhat cocksure and, and saying, I, I can do this thinking that you know more than you do. And the opposite was the imposter syndrome that you felt like you, where you didn't belong and you shouldn't attempt anything because it's not, it's, it's not where you, where you belong. Yeah. Um, it's that,
0: it's that old, uh, what is it? The, the Dick Cheney line, we don't know. There are known unknowns and known, un- whatever, all that bullshit. Yeah, right. there are
1: no knowns. There there's unknowns. a truth to it.
0: There's a truth not to that. That's bullshit. But there is a truth to we don't know what we don't know. And the only way to yeah, yeah, yeah. learn what we don't know is by trying and failing. It's putting yeah, yeah, ourselves yeah. out there and figuring out, okay, we learned from this lesson.
1: And, and that starts with admitting that I, the only thing I know is that I know nothing because like, because having that, hum- that's just, that's the ultimate humility, right? That's the ultimate humility where you're like, I, there's a, like, as much as I know now, if I knew everything, I would realize that I know this much when the, what, what what's there to be known is infinite. And, yeah. and so like having that humility well, it's that. Without you going, I don't need to know everything because I can't know everything and no one knows everything. Yeah. So I'm no there, one, like,
0: every- that's true. No one knows you anything. Mean, None of no. us. We're all just putting our stuff. But the thing that is, is yes, go into it with humility, but go into it like Mm -hmm. too many people, because people are celebrating failures and I I don't have any respect for people that are just, you know, shitting on people because they tried something, you know, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, I I think we do need to cultivate a a culture where we celebrate people who tried something and we learn from it and Mm -hmm. we pat people on the back for, you know, falling on their face. Um, yeah, which is, it's interesting. I, you know, yeah, I, I won't go too much deeper into that, but I do think it's important to to celebrate that, that, you know, pushing yourself out there going for it. Shyamalan is a great example of that. He always goes for it. Mm-hmm. I don't mm-hmm. always love all of the product of it, but he has produced some of the, like my favorite Shyamalan movie of all time is Unbreakable. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, <laughs> it's not yours and that's fine i love unbreakable i think it's so well it's done. up there it's though so-
1: it's up there uh, like so Unbreak- yeah. unbreakable is is probably my second favorite like because i i i know everyone that like loves the sixth sense there yeah, uh the I village has sense, its too. the village has its uh it's faithful i still um, love
0: the village we could we could have a yeah great i enjoy discussion it. It. on villeneuve and and uh yeah in the village
1: but the strange thing about Shyamalan is it's not as though he has hits and misses and hits and misses. It's like he had a string of hits and then a string of misses, and now it's sort of like the I ha, the, I I haven't seen Knock at the Door yet, so I don't know whether he kind of came back to form after Old. Old was absolutely brutally rubbish. I I, I struggle with Old so much, and yeah. but there are but there are. Um, There, you know, it was like there was a period where he could do no wrong right at the beginning of his career. It was like absolutely knocking it out of the park. Then it kind of was a bit of a dip. Then there was a calamity. And then now it's sort of like, I don't know. I don't even know where he is. So it's not like hit, miss, hit, miss, hit, miss, hit, miss. It's a strange one where he was just on top of the world. And then I don't know if it was that he got high on his own supply or he got too much money and didn't know what to do with that level of,
0: I don't, uh, I don't think any of us can really comment on his process or where he's at. He's been more successful than most of us could dream of being.
2: Absolutely. And I think uh,
0: recognizing the fact that he's an artist going through the artistic process and whether it lands with you or not, it doesn't matter. There's real cultural significance there. And, uh, I, I don't know. Mostly I don't, I don't want to harp on uh, people that uh, are not popular or successful for whatever reason. I mm-hmm. think uh, I want to celebrate his achievements and I think he's achieved Absolutely. amazing stuff. I would, I Absolutely. dream of achieving some of the stuff that he's achieved.
1: Just making and, one of his best movies. Yeah, like, exactly. You know what I mean? just, he made just several one.
0: amazing movies that powerfully changed the way the world's perceives art and perceives each other. Yeah. And it's, that's a powerful yeah. legacy. And so
1: he got the title, of the King of the plot twist for, you know, for quite a while, yeah. like that, yeah. that's an achievement in of itself.
0: Yeah. Which, you know, it's, it's one device for storytelling. And I think it's, mm-hmm. and he used it really well mm-hmm. for some things. For
1: but, some yeah. things. <laughs> yeah, exactly,
0: cool, well, I think we should probably wrap it up. Do you want to remind the yeah, audience yeah. like where they can uh, uh, check out your stuff and um, uh, share some swag?
1: <laughs> yeah, nice one, thanks so much. Um, yeah, so I, I am a, a filmmaker, a writer, and I am in the process of kind of uh, building my brand at the moment on all the different social media platforms. so you can my company is Wild Stag Productions, but you can find me at Wild Stag media on uh, all the usual social media machines and you can go to wildstackproductions.com which is still again it's in a bit of a rebuild at the moment but um i have a feature film called follow the dead that was basically you could basically call that my student film it was the first film out of college um but i am in the process of making the sequel to that um but follow the dead is available on tubi in the states it's available on amazon prime it's available on apple tv um youtube movies google play um and then i have a short film called loose thread that's on sofi tv as well so i'd love for any of you guys who are interested in seeing what's going on on this side of the pond to check it out and um we're all, we're posting we put post, basically post things every day letting people know what we have been doing what we are doing what we will be doing so if you're interested then that's where you can find me and i appreciate you letting me uh uh share my wares with the world Adam, thanks yeah, <laughs> absolutely
0: no i'm i'm proud of what you achieved it's amazing um and yeah and then also be sure to check out cinematiccore.com. we're gonna we're gonna be doing the uh story structure intensive uh once again a two-hour deep dive in, live deep dive so you'll be able to ask questions uh probe me for all sorts of I get tons of questions, tons of emails asking how this works and how this functions. So we're going to go through the process of developing a story completely from just a kernel of an idea, developing the the character, uh, and then building up the entire structure in about two hours. And then we'll have a nice Q&A afterward. Um, And uh, so check out the details at Cinematicor.com. And uh, we'll see you next week. Have a great week. Go watch some movies. You've got a story inside you. A screenplay no one has ever thought of. A novel you've been rolling around inside your coconut for years. Maybe you wrote a few pages and stalled out. Maybe you even wrote a whole draft but don't feel confident it's any good. Or maybe you've been writing draft after draft after draft and slamming into writer's blocks or dead ends or wandering into the weeds. Maybe you just have a few scenes centered around some dope high concept but you don't know how to develop a character. Much less construct a plot that would generate a character arc. Maybe all you have is some simmering spark of an idea. Just a simple desire to write a story. This book is for you. Story by Numbers is a step-by-step process. It gives you the tools to construct a plot that fleshes out your story with characters so real, so compelling, so multi-dimensional, you'll begin to wonder if you're possessed. Story by Numbers is composed of three parts. Part 1 gives you an overview of the four-act structure, 24 plot points, 8 sequences. Part 2 is a 35-question examination of your story that will guide you through developing and outlining your novel or screenplay into the four-act template. Part 3, well, that's just next-level dope shit. This isn't just another book on theory. Story by Numbers is a diagnostic toolkit for developing and fine-tuning your story. You'll also want to pick up the Story by Numbers workbook. For each story you're writing, you'll need a journal to organize your ideas. The Story by Numbers workbook is a companion notebook that walks you through the process as you outline your story and guide you through each phase of development, from constructing your protagonist's internal drive, to plotting conflicts that expose character, to composing scenes that drive compelling stories. By the time you've completed your Story by Numbers workbook, you'll be ready to finish your manuscript. Whenever you ask a writer what it takes to write a good story, they usually say there are no rules. If you want to know what they really think, ask them about a novel or movie they hate. Immediately they'll unload a litany of do's and don'ts so specific, so precise you'd think they're citing commandments. We all know following a formula is what turns stories into zombified, hacky imitations of better stories. You don't want a formula. You want a process. A method composed of practical principles that breathe life into your concept. You don't want some bullshit magical key. You just want to know what works and what doesn't. Does your story resonate or not? Everyone knows there are no rules for writing a great story. Now that we've gotten that out of the way, here are the rules. Story by numbers. Write more,
2: better, faster. Doper.